BBC Audio presents Doctor Who, Warrior's Gate by Stephen Gallagher. Writing as John Lydecker. Read by John Colshaw. It was a mess of a planet. Too big and too far out from its sun. If it had ever had an atmosphere, it had lost it long ago. Much of the surface showed long ridges and layers, suggesting that water may once have run in the lowlands. Sharp-edged wadis cut by storms in desert country, and wide alluvial fans where the storm rivers had hit level ground and dumped their collected silt. Now the water was gone, boiled away millennia before along with the air, and there was only the endless landscape of pale yellow rock. There was also life. The Antonine Killer was sure of it. He handled the controls himself, freeing all of the craft sensors for the ground scan. Command base was over the horizon, and temporarily out of contact. Otherwise they'd be opening up a cell for him right now, as his reward for risking a scout ship so close to a planetary surface without the protection of electronic overrides. He stayed low, so low that he seemed to be racing his own shadow as he eased up and over the ridges and he kept the scan at full power and at its widest angle. That would have earned more anger from command base, but the killer knew what he was doing. A wide angle meant a wider energy spread, and he was covering so much ground that a returning signal would be too weak to show. Even a raw cub, with his paws on the controls for the first time, wouldn't make such a mistake. But then a cub flew to please his trainers. And a killer, regardless of what command base might say, flew only to please himself. He could loop the planet until his motors failed, and still only cover an insignificant strip of its surface. Killer intuition told him that the privateer was down there somewhere. Hiding in a deeper valley, or the long shadow of a mountain. But the chances of fixing it with a scan were small so he spread the beams as wide as they could go and ignored the feedback on the screens. When the beam touched, the privateer would know it. The crew would assume they'd been spotted and would try to break away, and their panic would be a flag to the killer. He'd slide around under them as their engines burned to escape the planet's pull, and he'd give them the belly shot, his favourite, a light, carefully placed charge into the vulnerable underside of the privateer, enough to shake the hull with the sounds of a glancing blow or a near miss. The privateer crew would thank their various gods for his bad aim and put their ship into light speed before he could circle around for another try. And those grateful prayers would be their last. That was the beauty of the belly shot, the killer's speciality. It took out the power of the light speed motors and made that final jump spasmodic and self-destructive, a one-way trip to nowhere. It had earned him the secret respect of the Antonine clan, and it kept his record clean with command base. After all, the mandate was for search and capture, not search and destroy. But one way or another a killer has to be true to his nature. The sudden breakthrough of radio transmissions warned him that he was no longer screened from command base by the planet's edge. Three of their ships gone, 
We took them out down by the sun. Any sign of the privateer? That was the voice of the control desk. Three gone. That meant three clean kills by the brothers. All of the kills successfully disguised as accidents or self-destructs. He narrowed his scan to within acceptable limits and restored the safety overrides. He heard the voice of the brother who'd been quartering the massive southern continental plain. I had them and I lost them. They could have gone light speed. We'd have seen them go. It happened so quickly, he almost missed it. A red-white burn on the line of the horizon. A star that glowed brighter than all the others, and which moved against the pattern of the drift. The killer was nearest. He rolled the scout ship to follow. That's them, he told Control. They're making a run. He'd have to be careful. Out here within sight of command base, he'd have to seem eager and earnest, maybe so eager that the accuracy of his disabling charges suffered. And then, when the privateer blew a hole in the fabric of space and sucked itself through, he'd have to slap his brow, curse himself for his poor shooting, blast it, another one vaporized, and it's all my fault, and allow control to placate him with a few forgiving words. The acting could be fun, but the killing was best. Except that he was too far off. His trademark shot needed at least visual identification distance. And the privateer would be at light speed before he could get close enough. He increased power so that he was pushed back hard into the scout ship's narrow couch. The stars outside the cockpit became blurred streaks, but he knew he still wouldn't make it. So it would have to be an instrument shot or nothing. The targeting screen compensated for the scout ship's movement and presented a steady view of the horizon and the starfield beyond. The privateer was represented as a moving cross with the numbers of the changing coordinates shown beside it. The killer's paw moved to the input panel and he typed in his estimate of the privateer's course. After a moment, a second cross appeared, just off-center from the first. Good, but not good enough. He entered a correction, and the crosses lined up exactly, staying aligned as the privateer climbed. The scout ship's cabin flared white as the charge was fired. All the transparent outer panels were designed to turn opaque for the split-second flash of a launch. But there was always a lag, and the killer knew to keep his head down and his eyes averted from any reflecting surfaces. When he looked up a moment later... The charge was almost home, and the crosses were starting to separate. There was nothing he could do about it now. The energy torpedo was running on its memory toward a spot where it had been told it could expect the privateer to be. An uneven burn from the privateer's motors or an unexpected course change could ruin an instrument shot. They had no finesse. Before the two crosses could split completely, the torpedo hit. Both targets faded, and an overlay on the screen gave the computer's estimate of his success. The privateer had shifted off-center, but it was an 85% certainty that he'd put one into the engines. Not bad. Almost a belly shot after all. Did I bring them down? He asked Control, thinking. Do I get to claim the kill? Main computer says not. 
the controller told him. But I got the engines. Too late. They went to light speed. It was what he wanted to hear. A ship going light speed with its engines damaged at the critical moment was taking a long drop with no parachute. Wherever they were heading, they'd never arrive. Four privateers had tried to run the blockade. All four of them wiped out by the Antonine killers. The Brotherhood. The Clan. The anti-slavery alliance could be fun, as long as you didn't take it too seriously. Warp systems holding power at 65%. Overload systems primed and holding. Mechanical estimates unavailable. Target estimates unavailable. Sublight orientation figures unavailable. Destination coordinates unavailable. Failsafe cutouts disengaged in accordance with Special Emergency Procedure number 246118993, log reference 56-95-54. Authority, Rorvik, Captain Supporting Authority Packard, First Officer. Special Circumstances, quote, Extracted Minidos Warp Drive Guarantee-slash-Service Documents. Congratulations, boobs. You've succeeded in invalidating your Warp Drive warranty. The last couple of lines worried Packard more than anything. The privateer's systems failed so often that it was rare for the bridge screens to show a good report, with navigation tools failing most often. But then, most of the time, they hardly needed to know where they were, or where they were going. That was Birok's job. Birok would handle it all. Packard glanced across at Rorvik. The captain was across the bridge by the helm his face showing mild pain at the sound of the emergency klaxons that wouldn't stop roaring until the fail-safes were re-engaged. There was no knowing how long that would take. The bump of an apparently inconsequential hit hadn't prepared them for the chaos that began when they moved to light speed. Every navigation aid had suddenly registered zero, and the inboard computer had panicked and closed itself down, going offline to sort and dump information it was called but it was the machine's equivalent of running into a cupboard and pulling the door closed. Rorvik started to move. He'd said little in the past few minutes, and Packard couldn't tell whether he was being strong and silent or if his mind had simply gone blank. While the crew shouted and argued around him, Rorvik watched Birok. And that, of course, was the answer. Take away every navigational aid they had, and Birok would still get them home. Packard wondered what kind of damage could take out the stellar compass, the mass comparison probes, the sublight orientation, take them out in such a way that they didn't simply give wild readings, as such units usually did when they failed, but all pumped out a recurring row of zeros. It was almost as if they were nowhere. Nowhere at all. Rorvik moved around the upper gallery of the bridge and leaned across the rail to shout at Packard. How bad are the motors? he yelled, and his voice barely carried over the klaxon's roar. We've got damage, Packard shouted back, knowing that it wasn't much of an answer, but having nothing else to offer. I know we've got damage, but how bad? Packard wanted to shrug, but didn't. Rorvik's temper wasn't unpredictable, quite the opposite. It exploded at the least provocation. It was Sagan, 
the communications clerk who came to the rescue. He called across from his own desk. Lane's taking a look, he said. Lane wasn't the fastest or the brightest of the crew, but he was the biggest, and that counted for a lot. If it was dangerous or dirty, send Lane in. A little flattery kept him happy, and that was cheap enough. The motor section was isolated from the main body of the privateer by a pressurised double skin, and Lane had to put on a pressure suit and go through a small access airlock in the outer wall of the cargo deck. As the vacuum door slid open, he felt the outward rush of air tugging at him, but after a few seconds, that stopped. The sudden silence was a welcome contrast to the sirens that were whining all the way through the rest of the ship. He moved out to the edge of the gangway and looked down into deep banks of cabling and conduit, the outer layers of the warp motor assemblies. These were lit for remote camera inspection, but the cameras had long been out of use, and about half of the lights had failed, putting the motors in shadow. It didn't really matter. The inward curling rent in the privateer's hull was plain to see and big enough for a man to walk through. Somewhere inside the machinery, there was an irregular flashing. That could easily become a fire in the presence of atmosphere. Look and report. That's what Lane had been told, and that's all he intended to do. There would be no extra praise if he climbed down to the lower catwalks for a closer view, and none at all if he managed to get himself sucked out of the hole in the privateer's side. He went over to the communication point by the hatch and plugged in a lead from his suit. Lane to the bridge. Sagan heard him and patched his voice through the bridge loudspeakers for Rorvik's benefit. It was Packard who answered. What's the news? he said, aware that Rorvik was moving in behind him. Not good. The skins hold and there's damage in the warp. Rorvik leaned over, practically elbowing Packard aside to get to the microphone. How long will she run? The question was rather steep for Lane, but he did his best. She's burning out. If we don't get back into normal space-time right away, forget it. Rorvik turned and shouted across to the helm. Hit the brakes! Normal space, now! The helmsman was Nestor, and he started to shake his head. He couldn't attempt to jump back into normal space without some kind of target. But the instruments were useless, and Bidok wasn't giving him anything. We're drifting, he said. It would be a blind shot. Rorvik quickly moved away from Packard and down to the navigator's position. The alien lay half-reclined on a seat of riveted bare metal, strapped down and gagged by a breathing mask. Even his head was locked into place by a clamp. Only his right hand had a degree of movement, and this was severely limited by a manacle linked to a heavy chain. He could reach his input panel, and that was all. Rorvik crouched and leaned in close, so that only Birok would hear. Hear me, Birok, he whispered harshly, and ride those time winds right, because if you don't I'll have you flayed. There was no way for Birok to respond, but his eyes fixed on Rorvik, and their expression was murderous.
as Rorvik moved away, Birok tried to watch him, but the clamp held the leonine head rigid. Birok was a Tharil, a time-sensitive, one of the most valued navigators on the spaceways. That value was shown not in the wealth or the respect that he could command, but in the price that his abilities would bring on the open market. Birok was easily worth two or three times the cost of a raw young Tharil, snatched from his village and smuggled out past the Antonine blockade. Experienced as Birok was, and with a proven record of accuracy. Time sensitivity was the Tharil's curse. From an infinite range of possible futures, they could select one and visualize it in detail, as if it had already come to pass. Sometimes, in moments of extreme trance, their bodies would shimmer and glow, dancing between those possible futures and only loosely anchored in the present. It took intense concentration to bring a Tharil back into phase with the moment. Or chains. The heaviest chains would do the job just as efficiently. Rorvik had moved to another part of the bridge, and now wasn't even looking at Birok. He had confidence that the Tharil would obey and wouldn't need to be watched. Birok had resisted once. He'd expected to be hurt or even killed thinking that either would be better than the chains, but Rorvik had responded with a better idea. He'd called for the youngest of the Tharils to be brought up from the slavehold. Young Tharils were the least valuable, as time sensitivity only became controllable with adulthood. Rorvik had then killed the child in front of Birok, and called for another. The memory made Birok want to roar and fight as always but there was no fighting. There were only the chains. He closed his eyes and started to visualize. The more probable futures always came most easily. A limited range of destinations. The ship arriving safely. He only needed to read off coordinates and feed them into the input panel by his manacled right hand, and the vision would become reality. More remote probabilities were harder to see and impossible to realize, but dreams of freedom and escape were Birok's only recreation during the long hours in chains. Birok frowned. The picture wasn't shaping up as it usually did. There was a green, swirling fog that pushed its way before him. A view of space that was unfamiliar and almost emptied of stars. Deep within it, an object was turning, tumbling top over tail. He concentrated, tried to bring it closer. It was an artifact of some kind. Blue, and with the proportions of a double cube. Across the bridge, Rorvik was arguing with Nestor. He glanced across and saw Birok staring ahead, doing nothing to help them. He was about to call over with a threat when the alien suddenly seemed to snap back into focus. He reached out, pulling the chain taut. He made a fist, flexed his clawed fingers, and started to set coordinates. I think I'm ready, Romana said, 
checking the last of the settings on the TARDIS console. She was tired and frustrated, and barely concealing it. The Doctor was standing with his hands thrust deep into his pockets, gazing at the screen which showed the TARDIS's outside environment. The view of e-space showed little more than a green-yellow fog. Try it with the couplers back in this time, he suggested, without looking over. Same coordinates? Yes, why not? He sounded agreeable enough, but hardly interested. Happy to let Romana handle the haphazard stabbing jumps that were getting them no closer to escaping from this pocket of a substratum universe that they'd somehow wandered into. It was as if he knew that any course of action was likely to be as effective or ineffective as any other. Luck alone would have to bail them out, and no amount of close attention or urging could influence luck. Romana plugged in a couple of U-links that had been removed from the console, and then reached for the switch to activate the settings. Adric hadn't been travelling with the Doctor and Romana for long, but he knew enough to stay out of the way. He sat over by the wall with K-9, knees drawn up under his chin. He leaned slightly towards the mobile computer and whispered, Don't they know where they want to be? Knowledge is a resource. Achievement an end. K-9 piped, without any regard for secretiveness. And Adric was left to think about this for a moment, as the TARDIS's lighting dimmed in response to the new energy routings. Romana gave the screen a doubtful glance. This isn't going to work, she said, as the image faded, indicating that the TARDIS was in transit. How can you say that? The doctor argued, when you don't even... The screen image reformed. The familiar green swirl. No, it isn't going to work. Try it again. The doctor walked around to watch Romana as she repatched the U-links. Admit it, Romana said. You don't know what you're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. You're just being random. I'm following intuition. That's something else. Intuition won't guide us to the CVE. A signal from Gallifrey might. Oh, no, the doctor said, moving around the console, as if to escape the argument. Let's not bring Gallifrey into this. Their need to find the CVE wasn't in question. The CVE was the invisible an undetectable two-way door that had first dropped them into e-space, relocate it, and they could find their way out. But looking for a signal from Gallifrey, like a beacon for an errant child who couldn't even find its way home. The doctor was surprised that Romana had even suggested it. She'd been avoiding the subject of Gallifrey ever since their summons to return, and the doctor suspected that he knew why. But now, she said, at least admit the possibility. They may know we're here and be trying to help. I don't need any help from Gallifrey. It's better than tossing a coin. The doctor was about to answer, when an idea seemed to occur to him. Why is it? he said. What? What's so improbable about tossing a coin? Romana had seen this ploy from the doctor before. It came about when his argumentative reserves were running low, so he'd turn the tables and take over his opponent's ideas, leaving them nothing to fight with. Watching it being done to someone else could be fun. Having it done to you, and not for the first time, was only tiresome.
Romana gathered the spare U-links and moved off toward the door connecting to the rest of the TARDIS. The Doctor followed, getting well into his theme. Didn't you ever hear of the I Ching? he said. Random samplings to reflect the broad flow of the material universe. I'm not impressed. Romana's voice came back faintly. The Doctor glanced across at Adric and K-9, and flashed them the smile that meant mischief, whatever the circumstances. Don't go away, he said, and vanished through the door. The privateer was getting a thorough shaking. Rorvik had to hang onto the rail by the helm to keep him from being pitched over to the lower gangway levels. He shouted at Nestor. It doesn't matter where, just get us down! Don't yell at me, Nestor protested, and lifted his hands to show that the controls were moving without any help. Ask Birok what he's playing at. The shaking ended as suddenly as it had begun, and the sirens began to wind down. Crewmen started to blink as lighting levels were restored from red wash to normality. Only a couple of low-level beeps and hoots continued, signals of minor damage resulting from the rough handling. That was normal for any flight. Rorvik said, Is that it? Are we stable? Somebody sighed. Somebody giggled. One or two crewmen started to flick switches on the desks before them. Rorvik tried again. This time there was a hint of menace in his voice. Maybe you thought it was a rhetorical question. I had the mistaken idea. There was a crew somewhere around here to give me answers. Packard quickly cut in from the technical systems point. The motors are shut down. We're not travelling. Other than that, I can't tell. Can't tell? The instruments, he gestured at the panels in front of him. Shot! Birok lay in his restraints, exhausted and drained. His eyes were rolled upwards and half-closed. Rorvik said as he moved toward him, I hope you played this right, Birok, because if you didn't... He was wasting his time. Birok was deaf to all threats. Rorvik gestured across the bridge to Sagan. Take him below and patch him up. Sagan hurried forward touching another crewman on the shoulder as he came around the walkway. The crewman, whose name was Joss, got up and joined him without arguing. Nobody wanted to risk Rorvik's annoyance, not right now. They went either side of the navigator's chair and started to unchain the Tharrell. Rorvik, meanwhile, made his way across to the technical systems point. "'Well?' he asked Packard, who looked down at his display screen. Packard said, According to this, we never made it back into normal space-time. Meaning? We're stuck somewhere that isn't even supposed to exist. If you don't understand the readouts, say so. I don't understand the readouts, Packard admitted readily, and Rorvik turned in annoyance towards Nesta. Sagan and Joss had by now freed Birok, and they were taking an arm each to drag his inert form toward the bridge stairway and the lower decks. The alien was giving them no help. Report from the helm, Rorvik demanded crisply. Nestor looked around uneasy. Rorvik added, That's you, remember? 
What do you want me to say? Rorvik closed his eyes wearily. The corridors that ran deep into the storage and service areas of the privateer were as run down and disreputable as the rest of the ship. One of her crews, many years and several changes of owner before, had decorated the passages with spray paint so that the walls now showed a continuous rolling landscape of crudely drawn flowers and plants, hovered over by huge bees and butterflies. Maybe the scenes had been intended to be cheerful, but down here, with the noise and the permanently stale air and the darkness, it was like a long-haul bad dream. Sagan and Joss were starting to tire under Birok's weight, and now that they were away from Rorvik and had nobody to impress, they slowed down. There was a sign that read, Cargo, Main Locks Access, but it had been painted over and a crude arrow drawn underneath it, another relic, this time of some old remodelling. They paused here for a moment to get their breath, but started to move again as they felt Birok stir. Neither wanted to see him awake before he could be secured. They slowed again after a few yards. Birok was as limp as before and seemed even heavier. He was sliding away from them, and they could barely support him. Hold on, Sagan said, and they stopped to get a better grip, pulling Birok's arms across their shoulders and around their necks for maximum lift. Birok came upright suddenly, using them to get his balance. They were still staggering in surprise as his powerful arms clamped tight around their necks, making them squawk and choke at the same time. There was no chance of their being heard, and as long as Birok kept his grip, there wasn't much chance of their reaching the weapons on their belts either. Just threshed around the most, and Birok gave a squeeze to discourage him. And as the alien's attention was diverted for a moment, Sagan managed to get enough room to reach for his sidearm. It never cleared its holster. Birok took three paces toward the nearest door and threw them both forward. Two heads made the door ring like a dinner gong, and the crewmen slid to the floor with a limited interest in what was going on around them. Birok didn't see them land. Already he was running. He could feel himself starting to shimmer out of phase, but he got a grip. Right now he needed total concentration on the present. But the shimmering was a good sign. It meant that his achievable futures were multiplying as a consequence of his action. He had never been alone in the below-decks area of the privateer before, and he didn't know which way to go. But he was a Tharrell, a time-sensitive who could direct ships across galaxies, and who could surely steer himself from the inside of one rusty old crate to the outside. He paused at an intersection, looked around, and following strong instinct, chose a direction. The slave holds were below him. He could feel it. Hundreds, maybe even thousands of his own people, stacked like cards in a deck, and drugged into a placid sleep by the slave ship's life support systems. These were feed tubes and pumps that barely sustained existence, in conditions that otherwise would kill more than half their number. The call to go down to them was strong, but Birok had to resist. The tenuous outline of a future that he'd seen under the chains had set him on a different course. 
the vision of it would guide him, in when to act and when to hold back, but it didn't offer him any special protection. Other, less successful futures could easily prevail. No alarms were ringing yet, but it could only be a matter of minutes. He rounded a corner, and then, at a sound, pulled back. He dodged into a doorway to conceal himself as a panel slid open somewhere ahead. There was light beyond the panel, and the long shadow of someone moving in the light. Lane stepped from the access lock in the main corridor. He cracked the seal on his helmet and removed it with relief. His nose had been itching for more than five minutes, and he'd nearly dislocated his neck trying to rub it against the inside of the visor. He treated it to a good scrub from the rough fabric of his glove. Otherwise he might have seen Birok coming, but he didn't, and was barged aside as the Tharrell ran to beat the sliding door. Lane stared ahead for a moment, slow to react, because he couldn't quite believe it. If he didn't know better, he'd have said that a Tharrell had just pushed past him to get to the warp chamber. He turned to take a second look, and saw the lock panel closing. It was crazy. Tharrells didn't run loose around the ship, and if one did, why would he want to trap himself in a sealed-off engine compartment, one with no hatch to the outside? Except that the damaged compartment had something just as good as a hatch, a man-sized opening, ripped by an Antonine torpedo. Lane ran to the door, but the warning lights had already changed. The second door was open, and so this inner door was sealed. He reached instead for the intercom point by the frame. Lane to the bridge, he shouted. Emergency! Biddock was shimmering as he looked down from the catwalk to the damage below. Cabling continued to spark. There was a crackling sound and a brief show of flames before automatic extinguisher jets damped it down. Flames betrayed the presence of atmosphere. Like a prisoner following a breeze through a dungeon, Birok looked for its source. He saw a white fog blowing in through the hole in the privateer's side, and beyond it, a light so bright that it was almost painful. Birok started to descend, allowing his attachment to the moment to loosen as he moved. The shimmering increased, and he became almost transparent letting himself stretch out to test a range of possible futures before he committed to any. As he came nearer, he could sense it. The sweet air of his people just beyond the jagged hole. The time winds. Like it or not, Romana was being drawn into the doctor's argument. Adric stood in the doorway of the TARDIS control room and watched. Romana was on her knees and sorting through a small box filled with odds and ends of junk, searching for a match to the U-Link that she had in her hand. The doctor wasn't interfering, almost as if he really did think that the solution to their problem might be something other than technical. How about astrology? he was saying, and Romana was shaking her head. Better things to do with my time, she said. The doctor tried another angle. What do you think is the biggest common factor in the belief system of every developed culture? Based on your example of astrology? Ignorance? No faith. 
Same thing. The belief that the universe is actually going somewhere. Every race watches the stars and sees them moving in patterns. They see how every universe moves in an even mathematical progression, and they look for some guiding principle that they can apply to their own existence. You can't predict the courses of people the way you predict planetary movements, Romana said. There are too many random factors that shape behavior. Romana turned her back to Adric for a moment, and when she turned again, she had another box to look through. Anybody who wanted to observe an intuitive arrangement in contrast with a logical index would only have to look at the doctor's storage system. Most of the stuff in this box didn't even belong anywhere in the TARDIS. The doctor went on. Only because the number of factors affecting a life is too vast to calculate. But if you could construct a formula which relates those factors to the greater flow of cause and effect. You'd have a formula as big as the universe and as difficult to handle. In spite of Romana's dismissal, Adric was beginning to think that he could understand what the doctor was saying. Put a thousand grains of sand in a jar, and no matter how random their order, the final position of each would be determined by the courses and actions of all the others. The number of possible futures open to each grain would be so immense that, as Romana had said, any attempt to chart them mathematically would be impractical. But take a few of the grains at random, and from them extrapolate a pattern. Adric wasn't sure whether the idea was a piece of unscientific fancy, or whether it wasn't a glimpse into a system that was on some other level than any conventional scientific approach. But think of e-space, the doctor was saying. A universe of very little matter, all spread thin. Simplified relationships between bodies means a simpler formula to explain them. And a random act like the fall of a coin begins to gain significance. The toss of a coin. Could that be it? A question asked. A coin tossed into the air. The answer implied in its fall. The coin being that one grain of sand in whose behavior one might see a subtle reflection of the greater pattern. Adric dug around in his pocket and came up with a golden token. A decider had given it to him when he was seven years old. It wasn't real gold, just a molecule-thin coating applied by a technology that had been lost long before the decider was born. But as a substitute for a coin, it would do nicely. One flip didn't seem like much to hang a choice on. A series of flips would be better, he thought, giving randomness a chance to average out and the true pattern to show through. But a pattern would then imply a more complex interpretation than a simple yes or no. And there wasn't the time for test flips to establish an idea of what those interpretations ought to be. Romana, meanwhile, was plainly irritated. It showed in the way that she stirred the boxed components about, as if she'd lost track of what she was looking for. She said, It's mumbo-jumbo and superstition. It won't get us anywhere. It's an idea, the doctor said. Hardly. He knelt by her and gently placed his hand over the box to stop the search. Anyone would think you didn't want to go back to Gallifrey. She looked at him suddenly as if he'd whipped the cover off a secret that she'd been concealing even from herself. But whatever she was going to say, admission or denial, 
had to be put aside as the TARDIS started to move. The Doctor reached the console room first, Romana only just behind him. The control column on the TARDIS's operational desk was rising and falling. Adric stood beside it and looked pleased with himself. But this satisfaction was undermined when he saw the Doctor's expression. What did you do? The Doctor demanded. He looked around for K-9 and saw the mobile computer unmoved from its place by the wall. Unqualified interference with the TARDIS controls should at least have brought some kind of warning, he thought in annoyance. Adric backed off a little. Random numbers in a reduced universe, Doctor, he said. Never mind that, what did you do? I tossed a coin. Romana was looking over the settings. She seemed almost amused. They couldn't be in any greater danger than before, as the TARDIS could be trusted to keep them safe in transit, whatever the coordinate settings were. The Doctor's peak more probably came from his being faced with a hard test of one of his less substantial fantasies. She said, Are you saying you didn't want to be taken seriously? Ignoring her, the Doctor advanced on K-9. You saw all this? he said. Affirmative, Master. K-9 replied promptly. Well, why didn't you warn me? It was in accordance with the theory you were offering, Master. Romana added, If you're not prepared to back up one of your theories with a simple experiment. She was interrupted as the TARDIS lurched violently, and her thought as she grabbed the console edge was, This is possible. But loose objects were falling, and there was an ominous rumbling, like the first signs of an earthquake. Adric was out of sight, and the Doctor was down, and K-9 was sliding. She realized that the floor was tilting, that the timeless, no-space, inaccessible zone of the TARDIS interior had suddenly become accessible to an attack. The Doctor was yelling at her. Even so, she could barely hear him over the noise. I don't know where we've landed, he was shouting. But get us out! She'd realized he was too far from the console to see the readouts. He'd leapt to the conclusion that they'd materialized in some unsafe environment. We haven't landed anywhere, she called back. He couldn't make it out, so she added, We're still moving! That's impossible, he said, and Romana thought, I know that. The wooden coat stand hit the wall with a crash, and then started to bounce around downslope. Lights were flashing that had never been needed before, and alarms that had sounded only in tests were now sounding for real. The doctor rolled over. K-9 was between him and the entranceway. The robot's underside traction wheels squealing as it tried to stay in place on the canted floor. Beyond K-9, there was a slit of light, the significance of which didn't reach the doctor for a moment. He wasn't slow to understand, but it took an effort to believe. The even, regular forces that normally held the TARDIS in shape were starting to bend. The outer door was opening onto nowhere. The slit widened, and a white fog started to blow in under pressure. It was backlit brightly, and moved by forces the Doctor had never believed he'd see. The time wind. Adric was emerging from below the console, barely balanced on hands and knees. 
his head shaking groggily, as if he'd banged it. The widening beam lay on the floor like a slice, and Adric was crawling towards it. The doctor shouted a warning, but it was unheard. He reached Adric and pulled him back, just as the full brilliance of the light hit the console. Romana crouched in its shadow, as glass covers popped and exploded, and the panelling started to burn. The bright edge continued to travel. K-9 was still struggling, and it had almost reached him. The doctor stretched out in an attempt to pull the robot to safety, but it was too far. The light struck, and the mobile computer started to take the full force of the time winds. The doctor gasped and fell back, quickly thrusting his hand into his coat. The doors were wide open, and the time winds ran through canine like desert sands. They poured through his joints and seams, aging and altering as they went. The robot's outer casing became dull and scarred, and there was no way of telling what changes were taking place inside. Not that the doctor could watch for long, because his attention had become fixed on the maelstrom to which the TARDIS had been opened. It was a void, and they were being tipped towards it, emptied out as a curious giant might shake strange objects from a bag. The doctor made sure of his grip on Adric's collar with his free hand, and glanced towards the console and Romana. She was protected for the moment, as long as she didn't try to move out, and as long as the console wasn't stripped away by the energies lashing at it. K-9 had weakened, and was sliding back faster, but he was now out of line with the doors, and was in no danger of tumbling out. Their safety was relative. If they were to fall into the void, then the time winds would quickly take them apart, but the protection of the violated TARDIS couldn't last for long. Adrian was trying to shout something, but the shaking and the roaring were now so loud that the Doctor couldn't hear him even at a distance of only a couple of feet. But he could see the disbelieving expression on the boy's face. And when he followed his eyes, the doctor saw why. Out in the void, somebody was running. Too far away to make out yet. It was definitely a figure in roughly human shape. It moved slowly and with great effort. But still, it moved through the hostile zone that was outside of time and space, plowing on against the time winds and with the opened TARDIS as its obvious destination. It fought its way nearer, showing itself to be taller and stronger than a man, and finally crossed the edge of the void and entered the control room. Once through the inner doors, the stranger turned and took a hold on them his face towards the battering now. He started to put his strength into closing up the TARDIS. The strain was tremendous, as if he were single-handedly closing the gates of Troy, and the shimmering aura that could now be seen to surround him began to flicker and seem unstable. The stranger was tall and broad-shouldered, basically human in form, although his features were like those of a lion. His hands were broad paws, and what showed of his face, head and chest, was covered with a tawny gold fur that was swept back in a mane. His ears were high and pointed, 
his mouth wide, with the tiny points of fangs showing. He wore a baggy, white swashbuckler's shirt that was torn and stained in a couple of places. He might have been on the run from a fairy tale. The doors were closed, and with the time winds excluded, the alien's aura pulsed as he climbed the sloping floor toward the console. Even though the more immediate danger had been suppressed, still the TARDIS shook with the hammering of the void. Romana scrambled aside as the alien surveyed the controls, flexing a claw ready to operate. Adric felt the grip on his collar release and saw the doctor moving over towards the desk. He was about to follow, but he stopped when he saw K-9. The robot had lodged, dust caked and still, against the wall by the door. Adric half walked, half slid down the floor towards the robot, and tried to roll him to somewhere less exposed. K-9 tried to speak, but it came out as an unintelligible slur. At the console, Romana and the Doctor watched as the alien set in coordinates. Even when slowed and distorted by the shimmering, its hand moved with an assurance that suggested it had performed such operations before. We've got to stop him, Romana said. But the doctor put a restraining hand on her arm. Don't touch him, he warned. But watch his hand. They watched. It drifted across the console. The coordinate key sank and lighted only moments after it had moved on. He isn't fully on our timeline, the doctor said, sounding pretty certain even though he could only be guessing. Romana found it less easy to accept. He should be torn apart, she protested. The alien rotated the lever that would put the coordinates into effect, and almost immediately the rumblings that shook the TARDIS were underpinned by a more even vibration. The stranger sank exhausted to his knees and rested his forehead on the console. One by one, the alarms were dying down. What is he? Romana breathed, as if she was afraid the alien might hear. What did he do? The doctor had no ready answer, other than to state the obvious. I think we've just been hijacked, he said. But he came from outside the TARDIS. The stranger raised his tawny head. He looked at them for the first time. Can he see us? Romana whispered. The aura blurred his image considerably. Probably the same way that we see him, the doctor said. And then, as the alien blinked a couple of times, went on. Nice of you to drop in. But if you'd given us more warning, we could have tidied the place up a bit. What are you? Romana added. The doctor gave her a sharp look. What are you? Is that the kind of contact etiquette they're teaching on Gallifrey these days? He stopped abruptly, because the alien was trying to speak. The sound was slurred and seemed to come from a long distance away. The first attempt was a meaningless roar, but he tried again. Birok regrets the use of your craft, but others follow. Others? said the doctor. What others? 
but Birok carried on, as if he had an urgent message and only a little time to deliver it. Believe nothing they say, not Birok's kind. Look, you can't simply... The TARDIS lurched again, and the floor dropped almost level. The Doctor and Romana fell back at the shaking. And as they came up again, Birok was moving, and the door was opening under its own power. Adric watched the awesome figure pass as it loped sluggishly out into the void. The last of the alarms cut out and left them with silence. The silence was complete. No time winds blew. No forces worked to warp the TARDIS and hold it open. It was like any normal landfall. The doctor moved towards the door. Romana was about to call a warning, but she checked herself as she realized that the dangers, however they had originated, were no longer present. While his back was to the control room, the doctor carefully withdrew his hand from his coat and wrapped the end of his scarf around it. There was almost no feeling, but he didn't look. It was as if he knew what he would see, or was afraid of it. Instead, he turned his gaze to the landscape outside. There was nothing in any direction. Nothing at all. Just an even, burned-in white. A complete blankness that was hard to look at. He took a step back into the TARDIS. That was Birok, he said, somewhat unnecessarily. I know, Romana said, as she came around the control desk to look at the alien settings. Any idea where he brought us? I don't know. The coordinates are all locked off at zero. Zero coordinates. A line of nothings. That's exactly what it looks like, the doctor said. Warp systems to 40% and falling. Check hull for possible breaches at 01-00-5768-5775. Selective electrical systems, failures. Refer program 01-00-2375 for specifics. Leaking spigot in rec room coffee dispenser. Warning. Information on present location coordinates remains unavailable. What are you playing at, guys? Packard cleared the screen of its standard readout. Nobody ever paid it much attention anyway, and keyed in the code for a display of new sensor information. A single bright dot appeared, and rapidly sketched in the double cube that was the privateer's perception of the TARDIS. Then, with a little flourish, it rotated the skeletal image through three dimensions. What do you call that? Rorvik demanded. Some kind of alien artifact? Packard said. Could even be a ship. It's what Birok headed for as soon as he was out, Packard was tempted to add. And there's nothing else out there. But he didn't. Rorvik turned away from the screen and moved to the gallery rail. The bridge structure was set around a central well, a pit that was open all the way down to the lower decks and the maintenance areas. He sighed heavily. Maybe the privateer's control deck had once been gleaming and efficient, but that had been a long time ago. Now it was badly lit and filthy, the theme colour being that of rust. Any paint was streaked 
and aged. Fixtures were held in place with tape. Glass covers to screens were split and cracked. Beyond the helmsman's position, a line had been rigged, and a greasy old set of one-piece underwear was hanging to dry. The garment looked unsalvageable, all holed and patched. The crew were lounging and sprawling around, doing nothing in particular, content to let Rorvik do all the worrying for them. Sagan and Lane were playing cards. Joss was flipping screwed-up pieces of paper at a waste-bin, and mostly missing. And Nestor had taped a torch to the gooseneck stalk of his talkback microphone. Under its light, he was giving himself a manicure with an ornate dagger. Rorvik said to Packard, You got us into this. Start thinking of a way to get us out. Wasn't me who decided to run the Antonine blockade. I didn't hear you argue. Now we've got a busted warp motor and no navigator, nowhere to go and no way of getting there. Packard indicated the video. I'll say we should try to contact that ship. For what? They might have somebody who can fix a warp motor. Would they be stuck here if they did? We won't know until we find out. And we'll still need Birok back. Or we'll have to wake up one of the slaves in storage. Rorvik raised his voice to make it carry to everybody on the bridge. And even if the slave survives, which is doubtful, it cuts into the profit on the run. That's a chunk out of everybody's bonus. You want to complain? Bring it to Mr. Sagan here. Sagan looked up at the sound of his name. Because he's the one who managed to lose your navigator for you. Somebody booed, somebody else blew a raspberry. Rorvik turned to Lane. We are going out to that ship, he said, pointing to the screen, where the outline shape still revolved. You'll be leading the way? Why? In case they're hostile. Who would you rather see shot? Your captain or you? Lane had seen the readings for the outside, along with everybody else and he couldn't see himself leading anybody to anywhere in a featureless mist. He said, How will I find this ship? Portable mass detector, Packard cut in. Get it from stores. Meet in the cargo dock, Rorvik added. And then for Packard's benefit, We'd better go dig out the saucepans and beads. It was Council of War on the TARDIS. The Doctor, Romana, and Adric were all hunkered down around K-9. Romana touched the robot's side gingerly. It was pitted like a relic. She said, Is this caused by the time winds? The Doctor nodded. Poor old thing. Wasn't built to take this kind of treatment. He's charging, but... Adric said, You can repair him, can't you? He sounded anxious, and he was. The doctor considered a kindly lie, but decided against it. No, Edric, I can't. He showed a couple of small wafers. These are part of his memory, and with slight pressure, one of the wafers crumbled and disintegrated. Memory wafers are replaceable, Romana objected. If you've got replacements. Edric glanced forlornly towards the storerooms. And haven't you got any?
I've used all those I've got. They're not nearly enough. It's ridiculous, Romana said. One of the commonest components around? You can buy them in buckets on Gallifrey? K-9 won't make it to Gallifrey, the doctor said quietly. Romana stood up. She became suddenly businesslike. And nor will we if we don't apply ourselves to the problem. The doctor rose a little more slowly, wiping his good hand on his scarf. Well, he said, we're not in e-space. But then we're not in our own universe either. I think we must be between realities, caught in the moment of translation. Hanging in the gap. Right. And somewhere else? Somewhere else in nowhere, the doctor corrected. Somewhere else in nowhere, the doorway we've been looking for has to pass through, hasn't it? But because it's nowhere, we'd never find it. Adric offered helpfully. I could try tossing the coin, if you like. He was saved from murder by the sudden return to activity of K-9. All attention turned to the robot. The doctor said, How are you feeling, K-9? Basic misconception of the functional nature of this unit. K-9 chirped, sounding healthier than he looked. Unit neither feels nor finds it necessary to express states of efficiency or dysfunction. Does that mean you feel all right? A short hesitation, and then... Decidedly not, Master. How much control have you got? Have you checked through your systems? There is nothing wrong with this unit's systems. Concern yourself with the three men who are approaching. The doctor shook his head sorrowfully. This is not good. He's having delusions. But Adric was looking at the screen. Doctor, look, he said. And two heads swung in response. Where the screen had previously shown a white expanse of nothing, there were now three silhouettes. Their outlines were firming up as they approached through the mist. And they seemed to be wearing some kind of uniform. The figure in the lead carried a bulky apparatus that sat on his shoulder and extended a probe ahead. He seemed to be concentrating on a small readout before him. As they watched, he paused and made a small correction in angle that brought the party square on to the TARDIS. That's three impossible things, the doctor mused. Must be time for breakfast. What? Romana said, mystified. The doctor looked thoughtfully for a moment at the complete memory wafer that was still in his hand. Then he stowed it in a pocket. Never mind. I'm going out. Wait here and don't show yourselves. Lane was having a problem with the figures that the mass detector was giving him. He shook his head and tried to make another minor correction. But then Packard's hand was on his shoulder. Lane frowned and looked up, and Packard pointed. The blue double cube, or ship or whatever it was, stood only a few yards ahead. Behind them, Rorvik was trying to smooth some of the creases out of his uniform and looked like a captain. A door opened in the front of the box, and a man stepped out. He wore a long brown overcoat 
that wouldn't have been out of place on a pre-technology coachman, and several yards of scarf that went a couple of times around his neck and then took a few turns around his hand, which was stuffed halfway into a pocket. Hello, the stranger said. Call me the doctor. Always nice to get a visit from the neighbours. Rorvik hadn't expected to be met, or at least not by somebody of a normal human size. Even if this man stood alone in his box, he'd barely have room to turn around. Putting his prepared speech aside, he said, I'm Rorvik, this is Packard, and the beast of burden over there, indicating Lane, is just one of the crew. I know this sounds like a stupid question, but have you seen our navigator? It depends, the doctor said, and he seemed quite eager to be helpful. What did he look like? Packard cut in. He looks like a thark with a thoat's head. Really? Well, it would be hard to miss somebody as distinctive as that, wouldn't it? His name's Birok, Rorvik went on. And we're pretty worried about him. He's a Thariel, Rorvik added with a knowing wink. You know what they can be like? Left you stuck in the void, has he? Too right, Packard said with obvious annoyance. Dropped his chains and scooted. It was all we could do to— Most of the breath was driven out of him as Rorvik's elbow thumped firmly into his ribs. To follow, he finished hoarsely. This Birok, the doctor said. The Thark with the Thoat's head. With the Thoat's head. He wouldn't by any chance be, well, kind of loosely anchored on the timeline, would he? You have seen him, Rorvik said, although Packard thought that he was overdoing the surprise. He hijacked me and brought me here, and then he ran off into the void. Really? Rorvik said excitedly. Which way? The doctor looked around into the uniform blankness and shrugged. Rorvik's excitement died as he realized what the doctor was saying. Packard, meanwhile, had his eyes on Lane. The crewman had moved a small distance away from the group and was studying his mass detector readings. He seemed puzzled. Rorvik said, That's the trouble with Therils. They're so temperamental. Sometimes they just get triggered off and go into a big depression, get all kinds of complexes. Birak started imagining he was being kept a prisoner on his own ship. Can you imagine that? Ridiculous, Packard agreed, although most of his attention was still on Lane. Rorvik said, Did he happen to... Mention anything about being kept a prisoner on his own ship? The doctor shook his head. Not a thing. Packard had moved over to Lane and was studying the readout over his shoulder. Now both men looked confused, but Packard half nodded to himself. Well, that's a relief, Rorvik said. I mean, it's promising, considering his condition and everything. Very. I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name. Everybody just calls me the doctor. Packard was now moving away from Lane. His eyes held a message for Rorvik as he spoke. A sense of urgency. Perhaps the doctor would like to join forces with us, he said. If the doctor had caught that glance, he didn't show it. I doubt that there's much I could do for you. You're so well 
equipped. He indicated the mass detector. Lane was banging it with his fist. But then, Rorvik said, we could hardly leave you here, could we? And I feel kind of responsible for what's happened. This isn't the place to make plans, Packard said. Why don't we all go back to the ship? The doctor paused for a moment, while Rorvik and Packard worked to convey innocence and concern. They were like two alligators smiling at a lamb. The doctor said, Give me two minutes to lock up, and stepped back into the TARDIS. The door closed behind him. Rorvik turned to Packard. What's bothering you? he demanded. I don't know, but let's string him along. Packard had the feeling that there was a message in the mass detector's anomalous readouts, if only he could decipher it. We can't tell what he may be able to do for us. End of Disc 1 Disc 2 Inside the TARDIS, the Doctor was explaining pretty much the same idea. We can't tell what I may be able to get my hands on, he was saying. If they've got a mass detector, they may have compatible memory wafers. Why not just ask them, Romana said. She'd observed the scene on the exterior viewer, but she hadn't been able to catch much of the undercurrent of distrust. Believe them, you mean? Remember what Birok said? Why believe Birok? He was running, wasn't he? And, seeming to consider that this was sufficient explanation, the doctor turned to go back outside. Travelling in the void was an unnerving experience. There were no reference points at all, and without the mass detector it would have been impossible. The detector had originally been designed for freighter crews to check on cargoes without having to enter the holds. They simply ran the probe along the walls and got a reading of the mass concentrations behind it. Now it served equally well as a navigation aid, although Lane was wondering if it was safe to trust it. How reliable could you consider an instrument to be when it indicated that an object was larger on the inside than on the outside? Lane stayed ahead with his eyes on the instrumentation, and the others lagged behind with their eyes on him. Everybody needed something in sight to give them horizon, or else the featureless white around them would start to spin. And yet the void wasn't total. There was a sense of up and down. And they were breathing. Even if zero coordinates truly meant nowhere, at least there seemed to be a faint leaking through of reality from somebody's universe. Find the source, and perhaps you'd find the exit. The mists swirled and parted, and the dim, bulky outline of the ship could be seen for the first time. Although the details were indistinct and hazy through the fog, they could see the nose towering high above them at an angle over a wide base. It was like looking up at a giant frog about to spring. This is it, the doctor said, considering the circumstances it was a pointless question but Rorvik didn't seem to mind. That's her, he said proudly. 
Does she have a name? Used to have. The paint came off. What is she? Passenger transport? Rorvik was about to answer, but then he seemed to change his mind. He finally said, Freighter, low bulk and high-value cargoes. It seemed to the doctor that they went a longer way around than was necessary to reach the entrance to the loading bay, but he said nothing. They climbed a shallow ramp to enter. The bay was a fair-sized, greasy, utilitarian chamber with exposed struts that supported the curved outer wall and an open mesh floor under which cabling could be seen. Packard was the last in, and he stopped by an intercom. Party aboard, he said. Make safe the hatchway. What? came a voice from the other end of the line, totally uncomprehending. Close the door on the hold, Packard said wearily. The ramp withdrew into the ship, and the outer door lowered, a huge and ominous shutter. The doctor watched it. He wasn't exactly apprehensive, but when a door like that closed, there was no mistaking that you were being shut in. Somewhere behind, Lane was struggling out of the mass detector rig. The shadow of the door fell as a hard edge across the mall. This way, please, Doctor, Rorvik said pleasantly. Leaving Lane behind, they walked through an archway and out of the bay. On the bridge, some distance above the entering party, Nestor was still at his post, and still working on his nails. Over by the entrance doors, Sagan, robbed of his partner and tired of playing solitaire, was trying to build a house of cards and had reached the third level. Joss and another member of the crew were by the navigator's position, with its chains and restraints. They were holding up an undersized tarpaulin between them and inspecting it critically. It'll never cover it, Joss said. No matter which way they tried to arrange the sheet, some part of the restraints always showed. Up on the helmsman's board, an indicator lit up, with a shrill beep. Watch out, Nestor said. They're here. The two crewmen hurriedly threw the tarpaulin to cover the chains as best they could. The door slid open, and Rorvik strode in. The doctor came next, then Packard. And this... Is the bridge, Rorvik said, obviously continuing a long-running tour. Nerve center of the whole operation. With a casual side flip of his hand, he demolished Sagan's house of cards and continued the motion into a sweeping gesture that included the whole area. The doctor walked on past, looking around, trying to seem impressed. Observing his apparent interest, Rorvik went on. My team, best drilled you can get, efficient as anything on the spaceways. Isn't that right, lads? There was a general grunt from around the bridge. It could have meant anything, and certainly wasn't the rousing cheer that Rorvik had summoned. But he didn't seem to notice. Nothing these boys can't do when they put their minds to it. Except spring us from the void. The doctor was lifting a corner of the tarpaulin and looking underneath. Why the chains? Joss and his fellow crewmen exchanged a nervous glance. Rorvik came around to take a look, and his eyes widened 
as if he'd never seen them before. Chains? he said. What chains are those? The doctor lifted the tarpaulin a little further to show. The ones with the shackles? Ah, said Rorvik, suddenly remembering. Yes, those chains. He turned to Packard. What were they for? Thanks a lot, Packard thought. Birok asked for them, he said, improvising. Rorvik forgot his growing embarrassment for the moment. He was interested to see what excuse Packard would come up with. Really? he said. Why? For when it gets rough. Rorvik looked as if he'd just been told something new. He turned back to the doctor. But the doctor had gone. He bobbed up into view by the helm, on the highest level of the bridge. Nestor stared as the doctor looked over his shoulder at the control panel. Don't let me disturb you, the doctor said. Just carry on. But Nestor continued to stare. Boots up on the console, and manicure forgotten. I do believe, the doctor continued after a moment, that this is a standard Minodos panel, isn't it? No response. Yes, I thought so. May I just... He reached across the helmsman's boots and touched a button. Rorvik and the rest of the crew all turned in surprise as a large screen illuminated and threw light across the whole bridge. How did you do that? Packard said with suspicion. Rorvik moved forward for a closer look, an expression of wonder on his face. I never even knew that worked, he said. The doctor began to descend to the main bridge level. That's your exterior viewer. You mean to say that you've always managed without one? Never needed it. Birok did it all. Up at the console, Nestor was still staring at the buttons that the doctor had touched. He reached out and prodded one experimentally, like a chimpanzee with a piece of unfamiliar fruit. Well, the doctor said, now you've got something new to play with. The image on the screen frame-rolled a couple of times as Nestor dialed around different cameras mounted on the ship's exterior. Each view showed only the mists of the void, with some part of the ship in the foreground to distinguish it from the angle that had gone before. All the crew were transfixed by the images, and because the screen was now the centre of attention, Rorvik crossed over and planted himself in front of it. Now listen, Doctor, he said. You seem to know your way around a piece of space machinery, and I'm going to make you a proposition. I don't know how you get on in that little ship of yours, but I bet it isn't very comfortable. I'm going to offer you a free ride with us. If you'll join in with our plan to... He stopped. Everybody was turned his way. But they were looking through him, as if he didn't exist. Nobody's listening to me, he said with a frown and a dangerous hint of petulance. Packard stepped forward with a warning shake of his head and indicated the screen with a glance. Rorvik turned. One view was held on the screen, and as he looked, it became a little clearer, with image intensifier circuits coming into operation. The enhanced picture showed a gateway, two massive wooden doors, 
set in an arch of mason-cut rock. Two decayed pillars supporting a partly collapsed lintel. There was a ruined statue to one side, an empty plinth with a heap of rubble around it on the other. The stone was white and grey, and it blended off into the mist. One of the doors was slightly ajar. What is that? Rorvik said. Packard looked towards the doctor, as if to say, You found it, you tell him. The doctor considered for a moment. Find the source, and perhaps you'd find the exit. But he simply said, At a guess, I'd say it's where your navigator was headed. Birok stood in the gloom of the hall and looked upon the lost glory of the Tharrells. He knew that he was in the midst of a legend, but it was a legend of defeat, no more than an echo of the greatness that had preceded the enslavement of the race, the fall which had scattered them throughout a thousand systems to live as land-grubbing beggars while they waited for the hunters to drop from the sky. All around him lay evidence of the final struggle. At his feet, a long dead Tharrell, no more than fur dried onto a skeleton, pinned under the decapitated shell of a robot warrior. The head lay where it had rolled some distance away, a skull mask grinning through the protective mesh of the battle helmet. Wires, relays, and a snapped central strut showed in the open neck. The robot was coated with dust, but otherwise seemed barely touched by the ages, while the Tharrell's decay was almost complete. That had never been the way in the days of the greatness, the days when the Tharrells ruled all of time. By what tragedy that they failed to foresee their own defeat. Birok stepped over the two bodies and moved through an archway. The door was beyond. It was a perfect mirror. No dust had ever touched its surface or ever would. Birok regarded his reflection. A pitiful state for one of a race of kings, but no matter. The Warrior's Gate! would belong to the Tharrells again. They set out toward the gateway. As before, Lane led the way. This time the party was bigger, and not much effort was made to conceal from the doctor the fact that it was heavily armed. Nobody tried to stop him coming along. After all, he was more or less responsible for the discovery of the gateway but he could tell that Rorvik was now keeping a wary eye on him. The mass detector brought them within sight of the TARDIS again. They were going to pass it at some distance, but the doctor suddenly said, Since we're here, can you just hang on for a moment? And he was off before Rorvik could think of a reply. Romana was trying to carry out some additional repairs on the weather-beaten K-9. She wasn't getting very far. The main problem seemed to be that he couldn't hold much of a charge. He'd soak up as much power as could be pumped into him, but as soon as the connections were broken, his energy levels would start to dwindle. It was like emptying water down a deep hole. What's the capability estimate now? she asked, as she reconnected the charging cable to a wall socket. Canine hesitated for a moment, 
as he made the internal survey. Before the time wins, the response would have been instantaneous. 65%. It can't be that low. Not already. This unit guarantees accuracy within the limits of the data available. No refunds are offered on the grounds of displeasure. What? Query imprecise. Additional data required. Adric had moved in to stand behind Romana and was looking over her shoulder. He's dying, isn't he? Adric said quietly. Robots don't die, Romana said. They aren't alive. But she didn't sound as if she really believed it. They both looked up as the doctor entered. Canine started a slow spin to face him. The doctor waved aside their questions and said, I want you both to stay out of sight. They still think I'm alone. How's K-9? Getting worse, Romana said. Did you get hold of any memory wafers? There wasn't much chance to look, and I don't think I trust them enough to ask. Now we're all trailing off to look at some ruin in the void. What should I do? The doctor was almost at the door. He didn't want to give Rorvik time to add more suspicions to his scrapbook of dark thoughts. Try to keep the old boy in one piece until I get back. There are some static charge blocks lying around somewhere. You could try rigging those in sequence to take some of the strain off the memory. He didn't stay long enough to say goodbye. Rorvik was trying to communicate with the privateer by hand radio, but the reception was poor. He finally got through and spoke to Packard, who had stayed behind as acting commander, so that in Rorvik's words they, quote, wouldn't invite another disaster by leaving this bunch of louts unsupervised. Rorvik said, Anything from the analysis yet? Another of the reasons why Packard had stayed behind had been to take over Sagan's duties while the communications clerk worked on a computer breakdown of the puzzling results of the mass analysis of the doctor's craft. Nothing yet, he said. Sagan messed the figures up and we had to feed them in again. All I want is a straight answer. Is he worth squeezing for information or not? No way of knowing. Which was as straight an answer as Packard could manage. By now, the doctor could be seen heading back towards the party. Thanks a lot, Rorvik said. Wind it up. He's coming back. Packard flicked a couple of wrong switches before he managed to close the radio channel. He hadn't much experience on the communications desk. From the nearby computer input panel, Sagan muttered, You didn't have to blame it all on me. Packard leaned back, stretched, and locked his fingers behind his head. Why not? It was all your fault. Sagan half-turned in his seat. Why are we playing around with this doctor? If he knows warp mechanics, he can help us. If he doesn't, he can't. Gotta be careful. Packard said. We don't know which of his buttons to push yet. He could be an honest man. Their eyes met, and then they both looked away, shaking their heads. Honest men, a species beyond understanding. Romana watched the exploration group on the TARDIS's screen, following them until there was nothing left to see. Then she turned to Adric. Come on, she said. Work to do. She led the way towards the storeroom, saying, Any idea what a static charge block looks like? Um, no, Hadric said, 
as he followed her through the doorway. K-9 was alone, apparently inert, but his systems came to life without any warning. Unit functional and awaiting orders, he piped. Unit functional, master. It was a pale shadow of his normal speaking level. There was no one in the room to hear it, and it didn't have the volume to carry any further. Master, he queried, and turned his head for a weak scan of the control room. Unit is functional, master. Requesting instructions. There was a pause of more than a minute, during which the robot's operational signal lights flickered and almost failed. But then he said, Assuming typical memory lapse on the part of the doctor, responsibility lies with the unit to pursue and correct. And with that he lurched forward, only to be snapped to a halt as the connecting power cable came taut. He rolled back a little and tried again. The plug snapped free, and the cable trailed behind as he circled around to the door. As he approached, K-9 extended an antenna. There was a brief pattern of electronic notes, and the door swung open. K-9 rolled forward, out into the void, in search of his master. As they'd seen from the privateer's bridge, one of the gateway's heavy doors was slightly open. There was darkness beyond it. Every one of the party of half a dozen intrepid souls, finest on the spaceways, tried to think of some little hesitation, which wouldn't be obvious, but which would slow them for long enough to be the last across the threshold. The result was that the entire group came to a sudden halt, coughing, sneezing, an unexpected grain of dust in the eye. Except for the doctor, who turned by the open door and said, What's the matter? Not deserted enough for you? Rorvik seemed to realize that he set no example by hanging back, so he took a couple of steps out. But he hadn't stayed alive as the captain of a privateer by taking risks he didn't need. So he indicated the door and said, What makes you think Berok made for this? Because apart from both our pieces of transport, this is the only other location in this non-universe that has any substantial reality. There was literally nowhere else for him to go. Come on. The door swung all the way open. There had been no breeze, and the doctor hadn't touched it. He hesitated, but almost immediately recovered his brightness, or at least some of it. He stepped through, and the others moved to follow. It took a moment for everybody's eyes to adjust to the vaulted stone tunnel. It was so much gloomier than the void outside. There were the remains of elaborate mounts for burning torches along the walls. But these were now empty and broken, and skinned over with cobwebs. The paved floor was dusty and marked by a single line of tracks. Birocks. They followed them down the tunnel and into the banqueting hall to a scene frozen in time and aged a thousand years. There was an open fireplace filled with dead ashes. Over the mantel, a square of torn canvas sagged, blacked and mildewed from a gilded picture frame. Windows to either side were so stained and filthy that no light could get in, and the heavy velvet drapes were almost eaten away. 
The doctor wondered if the glass could be cleared, what landscape those windows would look onto. Somebody gasped, as the immediate impression of decay began to settle out into individual details. Evidence that they were standing in the middle of a scene of battle became apparent. Those fallen, twisted shapes on the floor that so resembled stacks of old burlap were in fact the bodies of the slain, and the traditional-looking sets of armour that were ranged around the hall were not empty suits, but something far more sinister, aged into immobility. Their pattern was not random. There was one to each archway, and beyond each warrior was a perfect mirror. As nothing moved, and no obvious threat was offered, the group began to spread throughout the hall. Its main feature was a large banqueting table down the centre. The table had once been set for a meal, which had then stood to rot. There were piles of mould where the fruit bowl stood, bones with shreds of black meat still clinging. The candelabra were cobwebbed, and most of the chairs had been thrown back or overturned. Only Lane was still by the entrance tunnel, where, with a thankful sigh, he was unloading himself of the weight of the mass detector. Rorvik stood in the middle of the room and looked around. At the far end, wooden stairs led up to a minstrel's gallery, and the suggestion of an even greater maze of passages beyond. One of the crewmen was climbing them. What makes you think you'll need that? the doctor said, and Rorvik looked down with genuine surprise at the gun in his hand. Didn't even know I'd pulled it. Must be this place. You can see that nobody's set foot in here for years. Except Birok. Yes, the doctor agreed. Except Birok. Rorvik was drawn away by a shout from another of the crewmen who'd moved to explore a side alcove. For a moment, the doctor was alone and unobserved and he took the opportunity to pull his injured hand from his pocket and loosen the folds of scarf around it. He winced at the glimpse he got. It had become the hand of an old man, wrinkled and scarred. And he couldn't be sure, but he thought that the damage had spread a little. His arm was starting to ache. He followed Rorvik to the alcove. It was a small, white-plastered chamber off the main room perhaps once a small chapel or storeroom. There he saw the cause of the excitement. Birok's footprints were across the floor. They disappeared at an arched doorway that was completely filled by a mirror. Rorvik stepped forward, his free hand outstretched. His fingers touched their own reflection. The mirror was hard and unresisting, and his touch left no mark a force field of some kind. It repelled all matter and energy, including light. He's here somewhere, Rorvik said. I want him found. Ferreting through some of the many darker corners of the TARDIS, Romana discovered four static charge blocks, buried under a heap of newspaper reports on the Battle of Waterloo.
the newspapers were fairly fresh. This was more than could be said of the blocks, which looked as if they'd been salvaged from some old device that had deserved to be scrapped. Adric now saw that a static charge block was a lightweight cube of foam with two simple connections, power in, power out. Romana explained that they could be linked to work in sympathy with any memory circuit, but that they could neither replace it nor work on their own. The electrical bonds that held the molecules of the foam together could be altered by fairly low applications of energy and could be patterned to hold information. A small piece of the block could then reproduce the information in its entirety. No specific part of the block held any particular piece of information. It all lay in the pattern. Any cut or surge in the power supply tended to wipe or distort the pattern, which gave the blocks a limited practicality. And these blocks weren't new, and they weren't the best. I don't even know if they'll take the current, Romana said, as she and Adric moved through into the control room. But all we can do is... She stopped, and saw that K-9 was missing. The socket uncovered and empty, and the door was open to the void. Oh no, she said. Where did he go? Adric said. Good question. Take these. Romana handed the four blocks to him and headed for the door. Adric called after her. What are you doing? I'll have to get K-9 back before he wanders off too far. Don't leave the TARDIS. And with that... Romana left the TARDIS. Once outside, she looked around into the void for the first time. The impact of its total whiteout was far greater than it seemed within the safe frame of the viewing screen. She took a few steps out and felt a rising panic. But it vanished when she turned and looked back at the TARDIS, her only stable reference point in an otherwise empty universe. She wouldn't go so far that she lost sight of it. That could be fatal. As she turned away again, she thought she caught a sound. She held her breath and listened. Very faint and very distant, but it was unmistakably K-9. Orders, Master. Orders. She couldn't be completely certain of the direction, but she thought she had a good idea, and if she hesitated, K-9 might move too far away. She set out to follow. Where the banqueting hall was gloomy, the cellars beneath it were dark as pitch. The doctor carried one of the candelabra from the main table, and it threw long shadows down the spiral steps as he descended. The stairway brought him to a paved vault, apparently some kind of weapon store. It was difficult to make out any details as the candle flames danced, but there were some simple pikes and spears in racks the full length of one wall, and what looked like thorough body armour on wooden stands. The attack on the gateway, whenever it had happened, must have been a complete surprise. None of the weapons had been moved. The armoury, like every other room in the place that he'd seen, had a mirrored archway with an immobile warrior planted before it. Another warrior, badly damaged, was slumped against the wall near the stairs. 
It had probably staggered down, sparking and twitching to run headlong into the stonework. In the candlelight, the undamaged mechanical warrior in the archway looked even more sinister. Its design was plain. A hard outer shell with overlapping plates to protect joints and a double mesh before the sensor rig in the head. It was this arrangement that gave the effect of a caged skull. The warriors up above had carried different weapons. This one carried an axe. Not all of the tackle in the armory was so easy to identify. The doctor set the candelabrum down by a heap of silver globes and picked one of them off the top. As he raised it, the dust sifted away from the surface, leaving it clean and mirror-bright. The shadows danced. The doctor turned. Had a slight breeze fanned the flames? Or had someone moved in the room behind him? But there was nobody. Only the one damaged warrior, and the other one, stilled by time. He turned his attention back to the globe. It was too large and too heavy to hold comfortably. A creature bigger and stronger than a man would find it ideal for hefting and throwing. One of Birok's size would find it ideal. But what was its purpose? The material, if it could be called a material, was similar in nature to that of the archway mirrors. Dust and grime didn't cling, and its reflectiveness was total as was demonstrated when the doctor saw the robot warrior with its axe raised behind him. In the fisheye distortion of the globe, the axe began to fall. The doctor dodged almost too late. He felt the passing wind of the blade tug at his sleeve as it sliced through the air. Time didn't seem to have blunted it much, although the jarring ring of metal on stone as the axe tried to bury itself in the floor sounded like bad news for the edge. The warrior seemed to be locked in place for a moment, and the doctor scrambled back. Its responses were lagging by a second or so, but it came about and started to follow. Now, now, old chap, the doctor said, looking for a reaction and seeing none. Come on, the doctor told himself. This is the armory. Something around him had to be useful and if the sagging figure over by the wall was anything to go by, these warriors could be damaged and even destroyed. Well, there was one weapon that was literally to hand. It took all of his strength, but he threw the globe. The warrior saw it coming and lifted the axe, swinging it like a bat. The flat of the blade caught the globe and smashed it aside, squarely into the chest of its damaged fellow. There was a bang and a bright flash. The globe vanished, and the damaged warrior was immediately covered with a layer of frost. Its hands came up in a brief spasm of animation, and it slid the remaining distance to the floor. As it hit the ground, it broke up, aged to fragility in an instant. The globe was an actual time bomb. The live warrior, meanwhile, was still advancing and its reaction seemed to be improving. The doctor took a step to the side, and the warrior began to circle. The doctor's active resistance had taught it caution. It was looking for an opportunity to move in, 
but didn't want to leave itself open to attack. As if it was in any danger, the doctor was weaponless, one-handed, and by comparison, frail. But at least one of those conditions could be changed. Circle a little more, and the doctor would be within reach of the rack of pikes. You know, he said quietly, it's obvious you're only a machine. Anything with half a brain would know you could just wade in and finish me off. Perhaps that was a mistake. Something in the way the warrior turned its head seemed to indicate that it had begun to understand, though the invitation wasn't being taken. Nevertheless, it bought the doctor a little more time. He reached the pikes and grabbed one, swinging it around in front of him. The axe flashed up and down, and there was a jarring that nearly popped his shoulder out of its socket. He staggered back a couple of paces. The pike had been reduced to a four-foot length of wood with a splintered end. He was almost backed up to the mirror, pinned down within the framing arch. There were noises and shadows in the stairway at the far end of the cellar. Rorvik's men must have heard the explosion of the silver globe and were coming to see what had happened. The warrior heard the noises too. As Rorvik and Lane came around the spiral, it moved in for the kill. The doctor slammed the shortened pike between the warrior's feet and gave a hard twist. The warrior pitched forward, wildly unbalanced, and threw out a three-fingered hand to stop itself against the mirror. It carried on through. The mirror swallowed the robot seamlessly and without a trace. What are you playing at? Rovik demanded as he crossed the paved floor. Thanks for your concern, the doctor indicated the mirror. Have you ever seen this material before? There's one over the sink in my cabin. Not like this. The warrior could pass through, but we can't. Lane was over by the wall, looking down at the damaged robot. Birok could, he said. At that point, there was an urgent-sounding call from Nestor, up in the main hall, and any further speculation on the properties of the mirrors had to be put aside as they moved toward the stairs. It was hardly surprising that Rorvik's men should be concerned. At least that's what they would have agreed to call it. Although by the picture that they presented, a better description might have been scared witless. They were bunched in a tight semicircle, every one with a weapon drawn, and every weapon shook nervously. They could hardly be blamed. An exotic creature had rolled in from the void without any warning, and even now was menacing them. K-9, the doctor said with delight, and shouldered his way through the defensive ring. Master, K-9 said, and he sounded stronger than before. Unit functional and the questing, the cresting. Instructions, the doctor urged. Requesting instructions. Is that yours? Rorvik said, and the crewmen started looking at one another. Uneasily. He certainly is, the doctor told him, and then he stopped to study the instrumentation on the robot's upper panel. K9, he said. Give me your efficiency rating. Efficiency rated at 72%. Better than it was. He looked up at Rorvik. Can your men sort me out a reasonably complete specimen of those robot warriors? Why? 
so we can find out why there's a thousand-year-old battlefield in the middle of the void. Rorvik nodded to Lane, who moved out and summoned a couple of the other crewmen. As Rorvik's men were discovering that the warriors were heavier than they appeared, Adric was wandering through the TARDIS. He'd been instructed to remain, but there was little to see that he hadn't seen before, and he was bored. At the control desk, he stopped and ran his hand idly along the edge. And as he looked at the repatched U-links that represented Romana's efforts to get them out of e-space, an idea started to form. The door outside was still open. Adric stepped out and looked around into the void. The golden coin, the token that had caused all the trouble, was in his hand. You have to ask a question, he thought. Probably at least two for a navigational fix. Gold sparkled against white as he spun the coin to choose his direction. Meanwhile, over at the gateway, Rorvik's men had dragged a complete warrior over to sit, head slumped forward, by the fireplace in the banqueting hall. The doctor had removed the armoured panel of its chest to expose the inner workings, and had spent a few minutes making tests and noises, alternately of satisfaction and disappointment. Now he'd run several lines from the warrior to K-9, and was putting final touches to the link-up. Rorvik and Lane watched over his shoulder. What will that do? Rorvik wanted to know. Stick around and watch, the doctor suggested. Power up K-9, but take it gently. There was a hum as the mobile computer diverted power into the warrior. A few small lights began to glow deep in the chest, but nothing more seemed to be happening. The doctor turned to speak to Rorvik. Of course, he said. There's no way of telling how long. Suddenly, and without warning, the warrior's head snapped erect, and it made a stiff attempt to rise, yelling in an unearthly, rasping voice. Exterminate the brutes! It barked, and the doctor called to K-9. No, K-9! He shouted. Memory circuits only! The warrior's cry ended in a strangled gurgle and it subsided to the floor. This had better be good, Lane muttered. He reholstered the pistol that he'd drawn as he skipped back. The warrior seemed safe enough now. The doctor moved in closer. Who are you? he said. We are Gundam. We exist to kill. To kill what? Kill. Kill the brutes. Kill them all. Details and background to programming. The direct technical command seemed to calm the warrior. Specify. Who made you and why? The slaves made the Gundam. The slaves to kill the brutes who rule. The word slaves caused a glance to pass between Rorvik and Lane. The doctor didn't miss it, he said. Tell me what happened here. The Gundam were sent where no slaves could go. We faced the time winds, and we lived. 
We came upon the masters without warning. No guards, no strength, and only their gateway to flee for safety. A gateway? Where? Here is their gateway. Here is their tomb. The mirrors? They lead to other places? Other times? A Gundam to every mirror. No brute could pass. No brute could live. And so the slaves became the masters. And the slaves were? The doctor encouraged? Men. Men the slaves and Tharrells the masters. But never more. After the Gundam, the brutes go in chains for eternity. So I've seen, the doctor thought. But he only said, Power down, K-9. He half turned away from the Gundam as he began to rise. The warrior's hand quickly reached out and seized his arm. But before the grip could establish itself, it weakened and began to slide away. The doctor shook himself free. Rorvik was forcing a smile. Quite a story, he said. You think any of it's true? Well, the doctor said carefully. What does it matter? It was all a long time ago. The important thing is that this could be the gateway which will get us all home. It was certainly important. But it seemed that there were other issues which, once understood, would not allow themselves to be ignored. It was unlikely that Packard, if he'd climbed to the helm and dialed around the camera positions which showed various angles on the void, would have been able to see Romana in any of them. And for her part... Romana couldn't see the privateer, or the TARDIS, or the gateway, or anything at all. The deceptive nearness of K-9's calling had lured her out further than she'd intended to go. And when she'd lost the sound, she'd lost her only remaining orientation. If Packard was going to watch anybody, he was going to watch Sagan. Sagan's discomfort made him laugh. The communications clerk was still transferring figures from a small roll of printout to the main computer keyboard. This was his fourth attempt. It's not my fault, Sagan protested. Who did these figures? Lane did them, though the results of the scan he did on the doctor's craft. I know that. Very good, Packard said approvingly. They don't add up. You're not supposed to be adding them up. I mean, if you believe this, the thing's bigger inside than it is outside. Are you holding that sheet upside down? You're talking, Sagan said stiffly, to a professional. Paid idiot, Packard corrected. I'll call Rorvik. As Rorvik moved away to take the call, Lane was running the probe of the mass detector over the mirror to which Birok's tracks had led. Anything? the doctor asked him. Just a reflected signal from this room. It shouldn't even be possible, but that's what I'm getting. It was then that Rorvik called Lane over. They stood where they couldn't be overheard. Rorvik seemed quite friendly, 
That in itself was reason enough to be suspicious. Just been speaking to Packard, he said. Sagan's having trouble with your figures. I only gave them as I read them. Yes, but you know what Sagan's like. Go back to the ship and straighten him out. What's the problem? Rorvik glanced across the hall. The doctor's the problem, or maybe he's the answer to one. I'll need this, Lane said, indicating the mass detector. Without it, he'd have no way of locating their ship in the void. There's another one coming. Knowing the way that his men's thoughts would soon be turning, Rorvik had ordered Packard to send a man across with lunch. Lane shrugged and moved towards the entrance tunnel. On the way, he passed by K-9. The mobile computer had been disconnected from the Gundam. Lane didn't hear the tiny pop of an implosion or the flash that accompanied it in the panel on K-9's back, nor did he see the mobile computer swing around and follow him out. Nobody else saw it either. Rorvik was watching the doctor who stood before the mirror. The doctor tapped it with his foot as if it were a bicycle tire. No effect. Rorvik believed that the mysteries of the gateway, like most problems, could be solved by a sufficient application of brute force. One simply had to work out where or on whom to apply it. Birok was gone. Rorvik was resigned to the risk and expense of reviving another Tharyl and chaining him to the navigator's chair. That still left the problem of the warp engine. But the doctor was here, and every new development showed him to be more capable and resourceful than Rorvik had suspected. A useful ally, or, should he be found unwilling, brute force usually made a cooperative prisoner. On the privateer's bridge, Sagan was still one finger typing. Packard said, Lane's on his way to help you with that. I don't need help, Sagan said, somewhat offended. Leave it and get down below. Rorvik wants you to go along to the slavehold and get one of the therals. See if you can revive it. I will need help for that. Take whoever you need. Take Aldo and Waldo. Thanks a lot, Sagan said. Aldo and Waldo roamed around the privateer, emptying the litter bins. Rumour had it that they were passed on to Rorvik along with the ship, but he wasn't warned about them until it was too late. Sagan pushed himself away from the input terminal. Revival was a harrowing job, and he'd welcome help from anyone. Anyone other than Aldo and Waldo. As Sagan was explaining to crewman Dulles how lucky he was to be chosen to assist, Lane was worrying over another apparent malfunction in the mass detector. It was giving him a reading for the privateer, so he wasn't exactly lost, but there was something wrong with the reading itself. By his reckoning, the ship was too near, as if the distance between it and the gateway had somehow diminished when no one was looking. And yet the test circuits on the detector showed no malfunction, no error. All he could do would be to make up a report to the maintenance section when he got back. He was about to move on, when something caught his attention. A sound? Out here? He strained to listen. Master! Orders, master! 
the doctor's mobile computer was chugging towards him across the void. Orders, master, it repeated. Lane looked around, as if there was a slim possibility that K-9 might be talking to somebody else. What do you want? he said. Efficiency rating 500% and rising, K-9 said happily. Batten down the hatches and serve every robot an extra tot of oil. Who left the spanner in the light sail rigger's sump? You've got the wrong man, Lane said, and he tried to back away. K-9 rolled after him. Please check indicators on all seals before blowing airlocks. Get lost. Hold the aerosol upright. Not for use in vacuum or non-gravity situations. Don't follow me. Orders, master. That was an order. Doctor's orders. An apple a day keeps blob fungus away. Stop following me. But as Lane did his best to ignore distraction and plot his way back to the privateer, K-9 wouldn't stop following him. And he wouldn't shut up either. The deep freeze, they called it. Although the temperature was only a few degrees lower than the rest of the ship, the slaves lay crammed together in ranks on three-tier shelving, arranged alternately, head to foot. Each was linked to a cluster of tubes, which supplied breathing mixture, intravenous food, and the system depressants that kept their bodies inert. The tubes were linked to main umbilicals, that drooped between retaining rings on the uppermost tier. The shelving lined both sides of the narrow hold, deep into the ship. There was a walkway down the middle, a raised grill that was lit from underneath. It threw a pattern of shadow squares that made Sagan look almost demonic when he said, Want to pick one you like? Dulles started to inspect each of the slaves in turn, assuming that Sagan meant it. Each one was tightly chained, a chill fog of condensation drifting around each body. Dulles swallowed nervously. Over here, Sagan said. He was on the other side of the hold, looking at the plastic card from the slot, identifying the slave in that position. The name's Laszlo, for what it's worth. Let's see if we can get him woken up without wasting him. Dulles went back to the wheeled transport wagon to carry the slave away and Sagan began disconnecting the feed tubes. This is a waste of time, he was thinking. I've never seen an onboard revival yet that wasn't fatal. Romana was thinking about Gallifrey, and this angered her. Gallifrey was the home planet of the Time Lords, the home of Romana, and once, although she sometimes found it difficult to believe, the home of the Doctor himself. That belief wasn't easy, because the Doctor seemed to be the very soul of nonconformity, while the Time Lords as a race were, well, let's be honest, they were very worthy, but dull. The reason for her anger? Gallifrey kept pushing its way back into her thoughts, claiming her attention while she tried to concentrate on the problem of the Void. No matter what deductive methods she tried to apply to her problem, everything failed for lack of information. And then Gallifrey, the world that she'd been hoping never to see again, would rise in her thoughts, unbidden.
Her time with the doctor had been an eventful apprenticeship in real universe living. But now, thanks to a summons from their home planet, it was coming to an end. They'd been on their way back when they'd unwittingly crossed into e-space, and most of their efforts since that time had been directed towards getting out. Well, they were out, but in a reality that was neither one place nor the other. Zero coordinates. A place of no space, of no time. A pocket of being that ought to exist only as a theory, a numerical tool, a mathematical convenience. Hello, Adric said. Get yourself lost? She spun around in surprise, and choked back the urge to squeak with delight. By some fluke, her wandering must have brought her back to... She frowned. Where's the TARDIS? she said. Adric was standing a few feet away. He flipped his token casually, caught it, flipped it again. There's no such thing as where in the void, he said. That's what the doctor is explaining. You create the place by being there. You mean you left the TARDIS after I gave you specific instructions to stay? I thought you'd be pleased I found you. Found me? Now you've succeeded in losing two of us. I'm not lost, Adric said patiently. So how do you propose we get back? Same way I got here. Flip. Let the coin decide. Gold on white, it sparkled hypnotically as it spun. Adric picked it out of the air. Romana said, The coin's caused enough trouble. It works, Romana, really. Just like the doctor said it would. You shouldn't always take the doctor too seriously. Sometimes he argues for the wrong reasons. It doesn't matter. I checked out the probabilities and got 60% accuracy. Expand the sample enough, and you can cancel that out. Watch. He frowned, forming a question in his mind. It was the first of two that would narrow down to a single course, the four possible broad directions open to them. And you believe that works? Romana said. It led me to you, didn't it? Adric said. He flipped the coin twice and then relaxed. He started to move off. In a while, he could go through the same process again, repeating the sequence until he narrowed down on his target. But you came this way, Romana said, pointing. But even as she raised her hand, she realized that she wasn't sure. Spin around a couple of times in the void, and your sense of direction could go completely. It doesn't matter, Adric said. Despite her lack of faith in the method, Romana followed. Back in the banqueting hall, the first event to catch everybody's attention since the doctor's questioning of the Gundam was the arrival of Pyman Joe from the privateer. He brought the crew's lunch. He staggered down the steps from the entrance tunnel. As well as carrying a mass detector, he was laden with a large box that had a hinged lid and a handle. He was ready to drop in his tracks. He headed towards the banqueting table and yelled, Lunch! So everyone would hear. He lifted the box with a final effort and slammed it onto the table.
the impact raised a cloud of dust, and he tottered back, coughing. The crew appeared as if by magic. The first one to the box opened the lid, and they all gathered around, clucking and cooing. Lunch, great. What we got? It's about time. I'm just about ready. Rorvik was glancing around as he stepped in amongst them. The doctor hadn't appeared yet, and Rorvik wanted to be sure that he didn't hear what was about to be said. Bad strategy. Right, lads. Rorvik kept his voice low. Since the doctor isn't here yet, I just want to grab this opportunity of us being all here together to say something. Now you all know about the problem we've had with the warp motors, and why we're trapped here in the... It had slowly dawned on Rorvik that nobody was paying him any attention at all. He couldn't compete with the lunchbox. He walked around the table, shouldered in between two crewmen, and slammed the lid. The general appreciative muttering became a little chorus of disappointment. Rorvik held down the lid and glared around. I'm only going to say this once. Somebody muttered, Good! And Rorvik shot him a withering glance before continuing. We've got no warp motors and no navigator. In practical terms, it means we stay here forever. That's unless we can fix one and replace the other. Nestor said, How do you replace the warp motor? And Rorvik looked heavenward in a plea for patience. We replace Birok. We revive as many of the Tharal slaves as we have to until we get one that survives the procedure. As for the warp motors, that's where the doctor comes in. Joss said, Will he be so keen when he finds out we're a slave ship? Or, Nestor added, that the motors got damaged in a blast from an Antonine scout? Rorvik thought about pointing out that the doctor's background might not even have given him knowledge of the anti-slavery alliance, but he simply said, If he's got an ounce of scruple, of course he won't be keen. That's why we'll force him to help us. Any questions? There was only one question in everybody's mind, but no one would come out and say it. Rorvik glared around. They were all staring longingly at the lunchbox. He took his hands away, and the chatter resumed. Warp systems powered down. Overload systems powered down. Life support holding at planetfall levels. Rec room coffee dispenser now inoperable. Electrical systems failure in rec room underfloor cabling. Warning. No new information on present location. Coordinates C01-00-2222. Force systems check. Warning. Possible undetected fault in exterior sensory apparatus. Am I in need of a service or is this ship getting smaller? Adric's idea had been to head back to the TARDIS. But somehow the privateer had got in the way. He knew nothing of the warning that the ship's inboard computer was showing to the crew and which the crew were ignoring, nor of the readings from Lane's mass detector, showing the distance between the privateer and the gateway to be contracting. All he knew was that he and Romana were standing under the privateer's jutting fin, and it seemed to make a mighty mess of his theory. 
Something else had made a mighty mess of the privateer. The damaged section was a little way along from the engine shells. The edges had been pushed into the hole, and the surrounding metal was blackened and soot-streaked. Adric said, The doctor didn't mention this. There was no obvious access to the ship anywhere near. If the doctor had been led around the other side, there was no way that he could have seen the damage. Romana said, Perhaps they didn't tell him about it. But the idea made her uneasy. It was obvious evidence of a missile hit. Somebody was chasing them, she said. I wonder why. Adric had already pocketed his token and was at the rent. The lower edge was a good step up, just reachable. Let's find out, he said. And he'd pulled himself inside before Romana could argue. She followed instead. It was comparatively dark inside, and it took her eyes a moment to adjust. She paused on the threshold of the tear, and the first feature that she saw clearly in the gloom was Adric's hand, stretched out to help her up. I can manage, thank you, she said coldly, and climbed up beside him. They were in a sealed area between the inner and outer skins of the privateer. There wasn't much room to move around. About fifteen feet above them, there was a catwalk, reached by a sloping maze of equipment, wiring, piping, and conduit. There were short cat ladders for extra assistance. Lighting was intermittent, provided by flashing lights within the equipment banks. There was also a more uneven sparking that indicated a serious fault. Adric was already halfway up the first cat ladder. Looks like serious damage, doesn't it? He said. Any idea what we're looking at? These are warp motor control circuits. Basic Minados design. Any Time Lord could tell you that. The Minados design was one of the commonest available, either in original or pirated form, and the Minados sales force was the most efficient in anyone's history. As soon as their prototype motor was completed, they built it into a market research survey ship and sent it to jump out to the galactic fringe and back again. The ship aged a few months, the galaxy a few hundred years. The robot probes then surveyed the number of Minados warps in use and, where possible, identified the users. The information was coded into a tachyon beam and fired at a plotted point in space. As the tachyons could only exist at super light speeds, the message effectively travelled back in time. It was picked up by the Minados people less than a year after the probe's launch. Knowing their customers, before the customers knew it themselves, allowed the manufacturers to avoid overproduction and wasteful sales campaigning. Piracy of the design was less of a problem than it might have been. Minados set up its own piracy operations and stole its own design. Much neater, and it kept everyone happy. As Romana had said, any Time Lord would be familiar with the story. So does that mean you're a Time Lord too? Adric asked her. Romana said carefully, By training, perhaps. By temperament, no. Adric reached the catwalk and swung around to sit on it and look down. But I heard the doctor say that you'd be going back to Gallifrey. That's the idea. Romana came up beside him and dusted off her hands. Adric was getting the message.
drop the subject. He looked around. Why do you think they were being chased? I don't know. Adric scrambled to his feet and moved off down the catwalk. It ended at a service airlock to the main hull of the privateer. On the metal bulkhead next to the door was a simple touch panel and sensor arrangement to monitor air pressures and deadlock the doors against the ship being inadvertently opened to vacuum. He glanced back. Romana wasn't watching. He touched the panel. Obviously, the deadlocks were disengaged. The door slid open immediately. From within the privateer, muted by the obstruction of the further airlock door, there came a drawn-out howl of agony. Romana looked up at the sound. But already it was being shut off. Adric was in the airlock. And the door on this side was closing. She ran down the catwalk and hit the touch panel. But there was a delay as the lock went through its cycle. The other door had to close before this one would reopen. She came out into a darkened room, low-ceilinged and in a regular shape. There were storage boxes stacked around, and an elongated grid of light was thrown across them from a grill in one bulkhead wall. The howling was louder and more distressing here, perhaps as near as the next room. Adric was pushing one of the boxes across to the grill so that he could stand on it and look through. The situation didn't allow for a reprimand, at least not yet. Romana crossed the storeroom and climbed up beside him. They were looking down into another, slightly bigger chamber. It was as if they were in the uppermost gallery of an anatomy class. Several boxes had been pushed together, and on this makeshift table lay a farrel. Was it Birok? Romana wondered. But no. This alien was taller, slightly thinner. Patches of his fur had been ripped away, and electrodes had been attached. There were also drip tubes, strapped to his arm in such a way that he couldn't shake them off. Two crewmen stood, one either side. As Romana and Adric watched, the Tharrell suddenly came bolt upright, straining against the cables and straps. There were curls of smoke from where electrodes touched bare skin. The two crewmen gripped a shoulder each and wrestled the Tharrell down. They were careful not to come into contact with any of the cables. The howling continued, and the Tharrell started to convulse. As he shook, his outline started to shimmer. One of the crewmen, the Compoint headset of a communications clerk hanging from his belt, started to curse. Forget it, he said. We've lost this one. The sounds of agony were now no more than a strangled gurgle. The Tharrell lay still as the other crewmen shut down the power, and soon the noise stopped altogether. The communications clerk, sleeves rolled up, was wiping his hands on a towel. He was also shaking his head at his failure. The other crewman was bringing an empty trolley. Why does it hurt them so much? He was saying. Because they're Tharrells. The communications clerk's voice carried clearly up to the grill. They're not like you and me. 
We've got a fixed existence in space and time. They haven't. It's like they never quite made it into another world. Try to tie them down, and it's agony. Like the way Birok used to howl when we chained him. The clerk threw the towel down. Don't waste your sympathy, he said. They're only slaves. Come on. We'll try another. They pushed the trolley through the sliding doors and out into the corridor. Romana could hear Adric climbing down off the box beside her and moving away to look through some of the adjoining storerooms. But she stayed to watch the Tharyl. It was pointless. The Tharyl obviously wasn't capable of anything more. His temporal instability increased and waned, but didn't show any signs of becoming steady. She was about to turn and follow Adric, when a hand like a vice clamped onto her wrist. I don't know where you came from, Packard said, but give me three guesses. End of Disc 2 Disc 3 Packard didn't know who the young woman was, but she had to be from the Doctor's craft. The damage report on the warp control circuits would have to wait. Here was more of a prize, and perhaps the leverage they would need to secure the Doctor's complete cooperation. If there had been any doubt that the Doctor might be of use to them, that doubt was now gone. If he'd concealed the fact that he wasn't alone, then he was probably concealing more. He pulled her down from the box. She started to step towards him, to get her balance, and he immediately knew that she'd be no easy captive. She was lining up a combat move, and he couldn't afford to let her. The only way out would be to use his strength to keep her off balance, keep her moving, so she couldn't use her own weight and power against him. He pulled her towards the main corridor, so she either had to stagger after or fall. They passed within a few feet of Adric, who had been coming back from another unlit part of the storeroom complex. He'd seen Packard with Romana and stepped back into the shadows. Neither saw him as they passed. Packard dragged his new prisoner out into the upper storeroom access corridor and down the ironwork steps to the main level, around a corner and past two doors to stop at a third. Sagan's recovery room. The mounting number of dead Tharrells would be company for her, and a clear sign that it made good sense to be obedient. As soon as she was inside and the door had closed, he coded it to lock. Alone in the corridor, he took a breath. He didn't get enough exercise, and when he got it he didn't much like it. He looked up to see Lane coming from the direction of the bridge. I just got back, Lane said. Someone said you were looking for me. You were supposed to help Sagan, but forget it. The scan surveys of the Doctor's craft were no longer important. The anomalies of no consequence. See to this instead, he said, and held out the clipboard that he'd been carrying under his arm. What is it? Damage checklist for the warp motor. Let me know when it's finished. Having offloaded the job, Packard walked off briskly, other things on his mind. Lane looked at the clipboard and moved off in the direction of the warp access hatch, not quite so fast.
It was obvious to Rorvik that nothing was going to be accomplished at the gateway until the lunch break was over. He could threaten and he could coerce, but the cooperation he'd get would be resentful and only half attentive. The crew had dusted off one end of the banqueting table and set out their meal, as civilized as anyone could wish considering the circumstances. Rorvik watched, incredulous. Finished, he said at last, with suppressed anger. The crewman nodded and smiled appreciatively. If there was irony there, they were insensitive to it. A couple of them were wiping their lips with napkins. Another burped. Then, Rorvik said, would you mind getting off your backsides and finding the doctor for me? We know he's around here somewhere, Nestor said. Around here somewhere isn't good enough. I want an armed guard and I want him marched back to the ship. The crewmen shrugged and carried on getting themselves ready without any particular haste, dusting off crumbs, unholstering their sidearms, checking the charges that they carried. One man blew his nose. Rorvik watched for a few seconds. Then he unholstered his own sidearm. He aimed at the centre of the lunchtime debris on the table. There was a crack and a bright flash of light that illuminated the entire banqueting hall for perhaps half a second. Napkins, bones and crumpled drinks cans jumped high into the air and came clattering down. They all stared at Rorvik, open-mouthed. If they'd glanced up to the minstrel's gallery, they'd have seen the doctor, candelabrum in hand, making a quiet assessment of the scene that he'd just witnessed. But they didn't. Nor did they see him nod sagely to himself, set the candelabrum down at the top of the gallery stairs, and back off into the labyrinth of upper corridors. Instead, they only saw their captain, confirming all their long-held suspicions by going completely mad. "'Move!' he roared. "'Bring them in!' Rorvik watched his men scatter, brandishing his gun and playing the pirate chieftain. Then he hesitated. He did a quick mental calculation and looked around. There was a crash from the minstrel's gallery. Someone fell over the doctor's candelabrum. Rorvik was momentarily distracted, but he only glanced up as he strode to the far end of the table. He lifted the linen cloth, old and frail and brittle. He looked underneath. Nestor was hiding there, fingers in his ears. After a moment, he realized that he was being observed. Any sign of him down there? Rorvik said. Nestor grinned, nervously and somewhat sheepishly. Adric's first idea had been to follow Romana, and at the first opportunity, to set her loose. But with the need to stay out of sight, he lost the trail. He tried to backtrack, and took another wrong turn. It was then he heard voices coming his way, and saw shadows thrown on the far wall at an intersection. He backed into cover, and cautiously peeked around the corner. There were two of them both about the same size, both noticeably older than any of the other crew, and they both wore similar pull-on knitted caps. Between them, 
they were pulling a black plastic garbage bag. So I cleaned it off, one of them was saying. Did you? Cleaned it off and replaced that little collar around the end. And it was as good as anything. Still got it. And they'd thrown it away? Just like that? Just like that. They don't know the value of anything. They were getting close enough for Adric to be able to read the name tags on their coveralls. One was called Aldo, the other Waldo. Adric was starting to think that maybe they wouldn't turn out to be much of a threat when another crewman appeared around the corner. He was carrying a clipboard. His name tag read Lane, and he didn't look so harmless. Sagan's looking for you, Aldo said, as Lane came level. Lane was more interested in the listing on the clipboard. I know, he said. He's waking up slaves, Walter added. Lane said, I know. There was another howling starting up. This one was close, somewhere in the corridors. The latest slave hadn't even lasted to the revival room. Killing him off more like, Aldo said. Lane said, Yes, I know. He was past them now, and not really listening. Waldo peered after him, and decided to see how much he could get away with. You've got a pointed head. Yes, Lane said absently. I know. Aldo and Waldo shared a secret giggle behind Lane's back. This turned into near panic, as Aldo tugged Waldo's sleeve to draw his attention to the fact that Lane had stopped in his tracks. Adric felt a sudden stab of fear. Supposing he'd been discovered. But that wasn't the case, not yet. Lane was walking back towards the two crewmen, who were now busying themselves tipping the contents of the garbage bag into a slide-back waste point in the corridor wall. Something puzzles me, Lane said. Oh, yeah? Aldo said, with exaggerated innocence. Or perhaps it was Waldo. At a distance, it was difficult to tell. Yes, he indicated the waste point. Where does all this stuff go? Waldo started to recite. Every shift we do the bridge and communal areas. Every second shift we do the bunk rooms and the kitchens. Every third shift the engine rooms and the corridor waste points. And once a tour, we give every bin a spray of disinfectant. Yes, Lane said. But where does it all go? Go? echoed Waldo. Where does what go? added Aldo. Lane indicated the rubbish again. It can't just build up forever. Aldo glanced at Waldo, and then winked at Lane. Trade secret, he said. Not supposed to ask, Waldo said. Lane said, I only want to know. Aldo wagged a disapproving finger, he said. You know what curiosity did? No, said Lane, expecting to be told. And Aldo was on the point of telling him when he realised that he didn't actually know. He turned to Waldo with an inquiring look. But Waldo only shrugged. He didn't know either. Lane looked from one to the other with growing impatience. Aldo said finally, There you are, then. There I am where? But they were already moving off dragging the near-empty bag and muttering to each other. 
At the intersection, the muttering turned again to cackling laughter. Lane watched them go. Then he shook his head, as if to clear it. Time to back off, Adric thought, and he turned to move away. The corridor he ducked into was about fifteen feet long, with a dead end. At the end was a door. Making no sound, Adric padded to it and touched the slide control on the wall alongside. Nothing happened. It required a number code to key it open. He desperately tried a couple of three-figure combinations, but he knew it was hopeless. He'd no chance of hitting the right pattern in the few seconds it would take for Lane to appear around the corner. No chance? No chance at all? He took the token from his pocket. The howling stopped around the same time that Lane was stopping to bang one of the corridor light fittings with the edge of the clipboard. Some of the bulbs were blown completely, but in many cases it was simply a bad connection, and a little jarring would bring it on again. But not this time. Sagan and Dulles came round the corner. Dulles was pushing the slave trolley and contributing most of the effort, while Sagan was making a show of pulling it. There was a form on the trolley, fully covered by a loose tarpaulin. The tarpaulin wasn't very clean. Lane said, How's it going? Badly, Sagan said wearily. Where were you when I needed you? Running errands for Packard. What's the problem? You can't revive a Tharrell without a decently equipped revival room. That's the problem. Look at this. He drew back the tarpaulin. There was a Tharrell underneath, its outlines shimmering spasmodically. Unstable. Useless. A fortune in any currency you care to name. No navigators like them in the known universe. This is the second we've wasted. Three if you count, Berok. Are you here to help me now? Lane shook his head. Dealing with this, he said, and held up the clipboard. Sagan dropped the tarpaulin back over the wasted Tharrell, looked at Dallas, and sighed heavily. Then he thought of something else. I just talked to the bridge, he said. You know Packard found a woman. Lucky Packard. On the ship, I mean. Reckon she's with the doctor. So that's his cooperation guaranteed now. Sure, Lane said, as they wheeled the trolley past him, although he really wasn't certain he understood at all. But he was just a humble artisan, as Rorvik was always fond of telling him, and shouldn't be expected to understand matters of such depth and complexity. Romana heard the locking mechanism disengage before the door opened, so she was already looking up when Sagan and the trolley with the second Tharrell came in. She was sitting on an upturned box. She was a little less tense now she knew that the prostrate alien on the makeshift table was no threat. The Tharrell's name was, or had been, Laszlo. She learned as much from a small plastic card that had dropped to the floor from the bench. He still shimmered and didn't move. Romana stood up and backed off as the trolley approached. Sagan grinned and looked her over. Brought you another friend, he said. But don't expect much in the way of conversation. Dulles pushed together a few more boxes, and the two of them transferred the new Tharrell across. Then they wheeled the trolley out, and Sagan paused to re-secure the door. The last Romana saw of him was his grin, 
as he leaned with the sliding edge to keep it in view as long as possible. A man convinced of his own charm, she thought, briefly entertaining the idea of making an effort to win him over. But that was for wet heroines in improbable stories, the kind she'd never been able to take seriously. She turned her back on Laszlo and moved across to the new Tharyl. This one hadn't even made it far enough to be tortured. Perhaps he was lucky. She was so absorbed that she didn't hear the gentle slither of fur across metal behind her. The new time-sensitive was named Gase. He wasn't dead, but didn't look as if he'd last much longer. He was shorter and slightly heavier than either Birok or Laszlo, and his aura was starting to break up. She turned his plastic ID card over in her hands. There was other information, but not in any form that she could understand. Gase's outline heaved, and his body stiffened. The glow that surrounded him pulsed once, impossibly bright, and then faded completely. The Tharyl had no more cause to shimmer. There were no future options open to him. No separate timelines to pull at his material body. He was gone. Romana turned away, and found herself looking up into Laszlo's brutally scarred face. Over at the gateway, Nestor stayed with Joss in the search for the doctor. This was in the hope that, if there was any shooting or hard talking to be done, Joss would handle the worst of it. Joss stayed with Nestor for most of the same reasons. Both were encouraged by the fact that they were armed and the doctor wasn't. They were even more encouraged by the fact that Rorvik was behind them, in spirit, if not in immediate physical presence, and fear of his annoyance made most risks seem preferable. So when they saw the doctor at the far end of a passageway, they didn't hesitate too long in their surprise. Only long enough for him to dodge sideways through an arch, and then they were following. They crammed into the doorway at the same time. It wasn't quite wide enough, and they stuck there, struggling shoulder to shoulder. After a couple of seconds, they popped through like champagne corks. They'd been led into a darkened chamber, where the only illumination was the shaft of light from the passageway behind them. The doctor was framed squarely in the beam, looking frantically around with nowhere to run. He was almost making it easy for them. They piled forward to grab him and bounced off the mirrored force field in which they'd seen him reflected. As they tumbled in a disorganized heap, the doctor stepped over and passed them to get back to the corridor. But there Rorvik was waiting, gun held high. At the first sight of the doctor, he let rip a couple of shots into the ceiling. The noise thundered through the passageways, and dust and plaster showered down. It wasn't subtle, but it was effective. The doctor skidded to a stop. Rorvik, his point made, leveled the gun. Steady on, old chap, the doctor said. Those things can be dangerous. Too right they can, doctor. So let's see a little cooperation. The doctor started backing off into the side chamber. Nestor and Joss were on their feet, looking embarrassed. The doctor said to Rorvik, What did you have in mind? 
A little sympathy and understanding for a bunch of helpless travellers in distress? Rorvik was following, keeping the doctor well within range. And some straight answers. What do you know about those mirrors? Oh, said the doctor, almost backed up to the mirror. Not a lot. Rorvik cut across the diffident denial with another blast into the ceiling. Another snowfall of plaster. This could be a listed building for all you know, the doctor warned. But Rorvik let off another blast. This one was close. So close that the doctor had to crouch back and cover his head with his good hand. He tried to tell Rorvik that threats and damage weren't going to get him anywhere. But he had to duck from another blast that was even closer. How many charges could these pistols hold? Flying stone chips picked at his skin, and he stumbled. He had to put out his damaged hand to steady himself against the mirror. It all happened in an instant. The doctor pitched backwards into his own reflection and through. Rorvik started to reach out, but it was too late. The doctor's scarf dropped to the floor, but no doctor. Rorvik touched the mirror. It was hard. Rorvik seemed momentarily numb with amazement, too taken aback at the stupendous mess he'd made of the operation to show any anger. He crouched down and picked up the scarf. Weighing it in his hand, he again looked into the mirror. Only his reflection looked back. Romana took a step back and tried to get out of the Tharel's reach. But she came up against the bench where Gase lay and could retreat no further. Laszlo quickly raised a reassuring hand. His aura flickered and then died. It was obviously an effort for him. He said, You are no slaver. Laszlo will not harm you. I... I thought you were dying, Romana said. The Tharel certainly seemed to be in a bad way. The fur on one side of his face had been scorched and blackened and an eye was nearly closed by the bruised tissue around it. He said, Laszlo thought so too, but Laszlo survives. And he stepped back, so that Romana might no longer feel threatened. So he didn't consider her to be a slaver. That at least explained the true nature of the privateer and its crew, and perhaps the missile damage in the hull if they'd tried to run some blockade. She said, I'm Romana. Slave? said Laszlo, who had obviously never before heard of the slavers trading in their own kind. More of a hostage. It's a bad situation. Their warp motors are damaged and their... We're trapped in the void outside space and time. But why should they wake Laszlo? Because Birok escaped. Laszlo's reaction to the name was swift. Birok? Birok lives? And for a moment he lost the effort of control and began to shimmer. Seen so close, the nature of the aura was apparent. It was as if several different forms of the creature were coexisting within the same shell, and each was straining to break out and follow a separate destiny. She said, What kind of beings are you? We are Tharils. 
We ride the time waves. We sense the winds of change. Because of this we are hunted and sold to be chained. But if Birok runs free... Nobody knows where he went. Laszlo will find. Laszlo will follow. Laszlo hasn't got a hope. Look around. We're still prisoners. The Pharaoh drew himself up, and for a moment the bearing of the slave had the arrogance of a king. He held out his hand. It was like a lion's paw, the claws slightly extended. Romana eyed it nervously, but it was palm up, non-threatening. Give Laszlo your hand, he said. Romana, fascinated by the outstretched paw, didn't understand at first. Laszlo made a slight beckoning motion, and then she raised her hand uncertainly and placed it in the Tharrell's palm. Laszlo's outline remained crisp and clear, but the room around them began to shimmer, as the Tharrell had done. It took her a moment to realize why. Laszlo was pulling her out of phase. Back in the small chamber above the banqueting hall, Rorvik was dealing with his annoyance the best way he knew how. He was taking it out on those around him, starting with Nestor, who had the misfortune of being nearest. Do you know what you've done? He roared. He wasn't supposed to get past you, and you let him. Rorvik seemed to have forgotten that it was he himself who had driven the doctor back towards the mirror. He turned to Joss. Are you happy? Are you satisfied now? Now that we've lost the only chance we had of getting the warp motors fixed, do you really feel that your life's been a success? A couple of the other crewmen had arrived by now, attracted by the noise. They watched uncomfortably from the open doorway. Finding Nestor and Joss unsatisfactory targets, Rorvik turned to the mirrored arch and raised his voice. Can you hear me, Doctor? I've got a message for you. I hate you. Did you get that of everybody I've ever met? You're my least favorite. And he hammered his fists on the mirror's surface in frustration. The Doctor was not in fact hearing Rorvik, although he could see the slaver captain perfectly well. No sound passed through the mirror. And from this side, it wasn't a mirror at all. It was clear air, and Rorvik appeared to be drumming his fists on nothing. The floor looked like stone, but it was warm and not too rough. The doctor pushed himself up to sit with his back against the wall. He'd landed heavily, not knowing what was ahead. And he'd bruised his hand, although it didn't feel as if anything was broken. He'd been rubbing it for a few seconds before he realized that anything was wrong. Or rather, it wasn't. The hand that had been blasted and aged by the time winds was now whole. He turned it around, but there was no sign of temporal scarring. And when he pulled back his sleeve and rolled back the cuff of his shirt, there was no spread of damage. He'd touched the mirror before, but never with this hand the hand that had passed through the time winds. The touch of this hand had been the key, and once through, 
it was restored. The doctor hurriedly dug in his pocket, looking around as he did so. This part of the gateway was hardly different to the other areas that he'd seen, except that it was cleaner, somehow brighter. And when he looked down the passage, he saw another difference. Its end couldn't be seen. Lost in the void fog. He brought out the memory wafers he'd taken from K-9. He'd so far been unable to find anything that could match them. Although to see the wafers now, it was difficult to see why it had been necessary. He rubbed them, flexed them, tapped them together, and they didn't crumble. Passage through the mirror had restored them. As it had restored him. Now, if K-9 could somehow be brought across. The doctor glanced at Rorvik. The captain's temper hadn't improved, but he'd stopped taking it out on the mirror. Now he was giving instructions to his men. But his back was turned, so there was no point even trying to lip-read. Whatever he was saying, the doctor could infer the obvious message. Forget any immediate attempt to pass back through the mirror. There was a distant whine, the clicking of servo-motors. He looked around. From the void mists of the corridor, the Gundam emerged. Instead of the dusty and aged relic the Doctor had last seen, the war machine was now slick and gleaming. It still carried the axe and moved with a smooth assurance that was somehow more than mechanical. It stopped. After a few moments, the Doctor felt his apprehension subside. The Gundam was no longer mindlessly attacking but seemed to be looking for something. It turned its head slightly, as if it could hear. Gundan, the doctor called. Are you hearing me? No response. The doctor held up the restored memory wafer in his made-over hand. The time winds get you through the mirrors, and the gateway heals the damage, am I right? Ignoring the doctor's words, the Gundan seemed satisfied enough to dismiss him. It turned and stepped forward into the corridor wall. Instead of crashing into the stonework, it melted through like a ghost. Again, the doctor was alone. At least tell me how I get back. He called after, but there was nothing to give him a reply. Lane was carrying out the order, given to him by Packard, to assess the damage in the warp motor control circuits using the troubleshooting list in the ship's manual. It wasn't easy. The privateer had seen long service, and its maintenance history was, at best, erratic. He started going wrong on item three, when a cable that was supposedly an essential part of an overload absorption circuit was traced through to end in a neatly tied knot that connected to nothing at all. After that it got worse, the Minidos colour codes had been ignored when new material had been installed, and some repairs were obviously in-flight jerry-rigs that had been left to work on the principle of that which ain't broke need nary be fixed. He got to item nine, with only three ticks against the list. It had degenerated into no more than a formality, of no practical use at all. What the bridge really needed to know could be told at a glance. He wedged the clipboard and checklist in between two thick ropes of cable, for some other poor sucker to follow through 
and climbed the cat ladders to the intercom point on the upper gangway. Adric felt a knot of fear loosen as he crouched at the end of the gangway, watching the crewman through the mesh grill of the flooring overhead. The man suspected nothing. The coin's guidance was his protection. It's Lane, the man was telling the bridge. Down in the warp control section. It could be worse than we thought. What do you mean? came Packard's reply, made tinny by the cheap wall speaker. The missile hit. It didn't only break the skin and jinx the warp controls. Some of the main power routings are uncovered. Is that serious? Could be, if you believe the handbook. A few more inches and we'd lose all our drive power. Well, as long as we didn't... Packard was cut short by the sudden strident blare of an electronic alarm as the overhead lights plunged to a deep red. The noise from the speaker could only be heard as a distorted babble, impossible to make out. But Lane knew well enough what it meant. Condition red, major alert. And if he didn't get into the airlock fast, the ship would be sealed, and he'd be stranded on the wrong side of the door. He stepped in quickly and operated the control. Sagan had triggered the red alert. Laszlo and the woman were on their way out, with nobody to stop them. And both were out of phase. He'd been flung against the wall, and Dulles hurled halfway down the corridor. After he'd reached the alarm handle in its wall recess, and ensured that everybody else's day got ruined too, he fumbled out his pistol. Unfortunately, for him, he was a terrible shot. Of the three charges that he put after Laszlo and Romana, two of them put out lights, and the third blew open a waste pipe from the rec room corridor above and brought down a shower of stale coffee. Lane saw them next, stopped in his tracks as he rounded a corner in the below-decks complex by the sight of the linked pair bearing down on him, slowed and shimmering like a desert mirage. Before he could overcome his surprise, they were upon him, sweeping past as Lane bounced from the corridor wall as if it was sprung propelled by a straight-armed blow from Laszlo. That's how Lane remembered it, more or less, when he could sit upright and think straight again. On the bridge, Packard was shouting to be heard over the alarms. A fine situation, he was thinking, when a danger signal attracted more attention to itself than it did to the danger. Well, somebody tell me who's ringing the bells, he said. And why? He looked around him helplessly. The crew had been galvanized into a purposeless panic. But there was one crewman at Sagan's communication desk who seemed to be signaling to him. Packard moved over, and the crewman held out the spare comms headset. Through the earpiece, without knowing whether or not anyone could hear him, Sagan was pouring out a stream of babble. The Tharil, Packard heard. He was faking. He's out and running, and the woman's with him. Packard didn't wait for the background information. Farrell, on the loose! He bellowed across the bridge. Seal the ship! Sealing the ship was the job of the helmsman. Nestor was the helmsman, and he was out at the gateway. The helm stood unattended, until an inexperienced recruit named Kleiban, realising that nobody else was going to take it on, climbed to the compass platform. An archaic name since they had nothing that resembled a traditional compass, and dropped into the chair. The privateer had been designed with mutiny in mind, 
so that the captain could seal himself into the bridge if necessary, and take over the ship's major functions from a single central point. The bank of override switches that faced Clyban was enough to make him regret his decision. He reached out and tentatively flicked a few of them over. Adric was on his way down the cat ladder to the hole in the privateer's side when he heard the emergency bolt slam home in the airlock. The compartment was now cut off from the ship, but fortunately it no longer mattered. He was on the side where he needed to be. He continued his descent. By this time, Packard had joined Clyburn at the helm and was looking over his shoulder. Loading bay doors, he said, and pointed to the appropriate switch. It was the most important single access and exit point, and the one that a Tharrell would make for. The ramp was almost withdrawn as Laszlo and Romana emerged into the loading bay, and the heavy door was starting to roll down. They made it under, but only just. Laszlo had to stoop, and the falling edge brushed at his mane. But by then they were out and dropping into the void, falling still hand in hand to the ground that was no ground. The lockdown continued, but it was too little, too late. Sagan and Lane joined the rest of the crew on the bridge. Dulles had excused himself and woven off towards the sickbay, where an automated desk doctor would listen to his problems and print out the appropriate messages of sympathy. External cameras showed a successful escape. Packard said, Get a warning out to Rorvik. Tell him they're on their way. Who was the woman? Lane said. That, Packard said with quiet bitterness, was our hostage. Adric made a sideways diversion when something started to erupt and spark deep in the warp control mechanism. And he reached the lower level just as the alarms died. He'd assumed himself to be alone, but he wasn't. Unit requesting identification. A familiar voice slurred. He looked down and saw that K-9's head was poking through the tear in the privateer's side. K-9, he said. What are you doing here? Obeying instructions. What instructions? Unit was ordered, quote, Go find a hole and stick your head in it, you dumb heap of tin, unquote. Analysis indicates that identification of the doctor was probably mistaken. Sounds like you were following one of the crew, Adric said, as he climbed out through the rent and over the mobile computer, guessing correctly at Lane's method of getting rid of his unwanted companion. K-9, I need your help. Help? K-9 queried, slurring again. We're on a slave ship. He took hold of K-9's casing and helped the weakened computer to roll back. I don't know what to do. K-9 was obviously making an effort, but to little effect. It is difficult to keep data in an orderly progression. Logic fails. There are substantial blanks. By this time, Adric had seen the trailing charger lead and realised K-9 was barely ticking over. I have to get you back to the TARDIS, he said. I do not believe that I can find the TARDIS. I am too weak.
to search for its mass. This will get us there, Adric said, producing the golden token. Can you move? I will try. Adric composed a question in his mind and flipped the coin. And again. Straight out, he announced. Come on. Canine tried to follow as he moved out, but could only manage a couple of feet. Adric came back and said, It's really bad, isn't it? Yes, Canine said simply. I'm sorry, Canine. It is unrealistic to feel sorry for a machine. A machine feels no pain, but... What? There wasn't enough power. Canine's head drooped. Adric started to push him in the direction they needed to go. But there was resistance. They moved, but slowly. Rorvik's efforts to crack his way through the fabric of the gateway had so far got him nowhere. Nestor crouched by a mirror arch and pumped a couple of shots into the stonework at its base. He fired so often that his pistol was becoming uncomfortably hot to hold. But he knew better than to complain. Rorvik was standing close behind, and this continuing failure had done little to improve his mood. The shots raised a lot of dust, but when it settled there was no damage to speak of. Just some surface pitting of the stone, and some powdering of the mortar in the cracks. Their first attempts, attacking the mirror itself, had been even less fruitful and actually dangerous. The charges were simply reflected away to send the watching crewmen running. It isn't working, Nestor said apologetically. We need crowbars, something we can lever the stones out with. Rorvik stood looking for a moment, his eyes on the stonework and his thoughts miles away. Then he gave a snarl of disgust and turned to walk back to the gallery in the main hall. And as he turned, he gave Nestor's head a push, just for meanness practice. Nestor was still on his haunches, and he overbalanced easily. As Nestor sprawled, two crewmen at the door got out of Rorvik's way. Joss was listening to the hand radio as Rorvik appeared on the gallery. The signal was bad, and he was holding it to his ear in an effort to make out what Packard was saying. Captain Rorvik, he shouted. Radio message coming through. Rorvik didn't acknowledge. He said, loud enough to reach all of the party and bring them out of their alcoves. Holiday is over. Move yourselves. I want this dusty hole turned upside down. Anything that will pass for a lever or a crowbar. Anything that will crack open the masonry and get us through this tomb to whatever is on the other side of those doorways. By now he'd reached the bottom of the stairs. And the crew, even Nestor, who wasn't complaining, though his idea had been lifted without any credit, was scattering to carry out his order. Except for Joss, who waited apprehensively with the radio as Rorvik moved towards him. If anybody wants to duck out of his responsibility to our little community, he went on, if anybody wants to go and hide under a table... This with a searing glance in Nestor's direction. Well, fine. Let him try it on. But remember this. 
Anybody I catch not pulling his weight will pay a serious price for it. Then he lowered his voice to speak to Joss. Now, he said, what's this message? I don't know, Joss said with embarrassment. Rorvik's eyebrows drew together like thunderclouds. What? You were shouting so much I couldn't hear it. A crewman arrived with the first of the potential crowbar offerings. It was a long, sinuous statue on a heavy base, metallic-looking and about the size of a walking stick. Without even seeming to pay any attention, Rorvik took the statue and slammed it down hard on the table. It broke cleanly in two. Rorvik tossed the truncated stump back to the crewman. He walked off, the pride of discovery instantly deflated. Rorvik held out his hand and Joss gave him the radio. Packard, he said into it. Are you hearing me, Packard? He listened. There was nothing but static. There might have been words scrambled up in the background, but it was impossible to tell. He tossed the radio back to Joss. Nestor was waiting with another potential crowbar. I've got a crew of idiots and a shipload of defective equipment, Rorvik said. That's my reward for being the fairest and most enlightened commander on the spaceways. He took the new bar and slammed the table with it. Some kind of heavy curtain rail, and it held. The arrival of Romana and Laszlo prevented him from making any immediate comment. The doors at the end of the entrance tunnel burst inwards from the void, and the two figures came pounding down the stone incline and into the main banqueting hall. Rorvik had seen Tharyl instability many times before, and he recognized it instantly now, but he'd never been aware that it was communicable by touch. For of the two, one was obviously no time-sensitive, but a humanoid being, and a female humanoid at that. They were crossing the hall, unobstructed by anything or anybody. The heavy bar was still in Rorvik's hands. He raised it high, and stepped out. As Rorvik swung the bar down, Laszlo's hand came up to meet it in passing. The clawed fingers barely seemed to brush the metal, but to Rorvik it felt like he'd slammed down hard on an anvil. His shoulders were jolted, and his head rang like the prize bell on a test-your-strength machine. As he gasped and dropped the bar, they carried on past and into the mirror behind him, dissolving through without a sound. Nestor ran across to Rorvik, feeling that it would be prudent to show concern, sincere or not. Rorvik looked up at him as he massaged his wrist, murder in his eyes. Then he looked around at his crew. They were all standing, uncertainly watching. Rubbish or not, they were all he had. He put a reassuring arm around Nestor's shoulder, and forced himself to smile. Nestor was shaking slightly. Rorvik only wished that he could feel some little part of the confidence that he was showing. We're stable, Romana said, surprised. It had happened suddenly, as they'd emerged through the mirror. This is the gateway, 
Laszlo said. Nothing is stable, nothing is unstable. What kind of gateway? An interchange of realities. It belongs to the great days of the Tharos, before the hunting and the enslavement, days that are no more. She looked around. She saw more or less what the doctor had first seen. A tidy-looking corridor, with its end lost in white mist, and a silent view onto the interior of the banqueting hall. She said, Where does all this lead? Anywhere, Laszlo told her, looking off into the mist. Everywhere, if you have the art to use it. And have you? It is lost. Laszlo is like a blind man in a strange room. Something suddenly occurred to Romana, and she looked back through the mirror. When last she'd seen the doctor, he'd been marching off into the void. There was no sign of where he might be, or of what might have befallen him. She told Laszlo of her worry. It is Birok we must find, Laszlo insisted. Birok is our leader. Birok will have a plan for the Tharos. He took a few steps towards the mist, and then turned back to the hesitant Romana. He held out his hand, high and imperious, no longer a slave. He was now in his own country. Come, he said. Trust Laszlo. Under the circumstances, she had little choice. If there was any internal consistency to the layout of the gateway beyond the mirrors, the doctor couldn't perceive it. He didn't know how long he'd been wandering, and suspected that subjective time was of no real value in this territory anyway. He'd emerged from the interior maze of the castle, to find himself in the grounds, long abandoned and overgrown. They'd once been formal gardens, but now rotted under a watery pink sky. The house behind him, once palatial, was now in ruins, and all of the greenery and stonework appeared to have been dusted with a light frost. The mists streamed around and through everything, sometimes making revelations, but more often concealing. Any attempt to get familiar with the gardens seemed inevitably to fail. There were broken-down fountains, resting areas with carved stone benches, groves of statuary. At first it seemed that these were all duplicated, several times over, each time remodelled in a slightly different form. But closer examination showed him that this was not so. What he saw each time was the same place, the same objects, caught at a different stage of decay. Any effort at making sense of the geographical relationships between these slices of time got him nowhere. He would retrace his steps and find that they had led into some area or some phase of the gardens that he hadn't seen before. At one time he heard laughter drifting across to him over untrimmed hedges. He followed the sound hopefully to a flat area like a croquet lawn. 
except that there were low stone pillars instead of hoops, and the grass had given way to moss, although the laughter and the low murmur of conversation carried on around him, the lawn was deserted. One voice, amused at something, almost became a roar, but it was politely checked in time and turned into a muffled cough and the click of servos. The doctor turned sharply. Servo motors had no place, even in this strange picture. The Gundam stepped into view from the bushes on the far side. It stopped and turned square on. One of the unseen party-goers from long past started to make polite applause, and others followed. The Gundam raised its axe slightly, as if to show it, and began to march across the lawn towards the doctor. This time there was no hesitation, no turning aside. The applause started to echo and become bizarre as the mist swirled across the lawn. And still the Gundam ploughed on. The doctor knew that he ought to at least back off, if not to run. But to where? The Gundam was already losing substance, dissolving into the tendrils of mist that curled around its body. With a little less than half the distance to go, it faded out altogether. The doctor was left with a single voice, solitary laughter. It was mocking and unpleasant. <laughs> Laszlo and Roman are elsewhere, and else when, in the same strange landscape, were having no better fortune. It was Romana who heard the music playing, and Romana who led the way. Laszlo followed a few paces behind, wary and mistrustful. They emerged into what looked like a copy of the banqueting hall, except that it really was the banqueting hall clean and fresh, and untouched by time. On the table, at its centre, there were fresh fruit, meat, and tureens of soup so hot that they steamed faintly. There was music from the gallery, and around the table there was chatter and conversation. But apart from Romana and Laszlo, the room was empty of people. Nothing, Romana said. Again? He is here somewhere. Laszlo knows it. It's hopeless. Even if we find Birok, there's nothing he could do. Your kind give in easily to despair, Laszlo observed, without apparent malice. Romana's pride was stung. I don't give in. I simply can't see the point in wasting time and wandering. Your alternative? First... Analyze the problem, decide your objectives. Next, check through your resources, then look for the pattern that will give you a solution, matching one against the other. It was all solid theory. Why did it sound so hollow as she said it? Technical solutions, Laszlo said dismissively. Easy to predict, easy to forestall. What's your alternative? A trust in intuition. Now it was Romana's turn to be lofty. Guessing games and blind man's buff. But Laszlo turned a hard stare onto her. Look around you. 
and see the greatness that once was. Feral greatness. Brought down and ruined by your logical thinkers. Apparently intuition was no defense. The day of the Therils is come, Lesla said, moving towards an exit. Matters will be different when it is over. We shall find Birok. Romana looked after him, stumped and frustrated. If he wouldn't stick to logic, she couldn't argue with him. As she left the hall, the music from the gallery ended. There was polite applause from the table. It was the doctor who found Birok. And at this time, Laszlo and Romana weren't so far away. As he broke through the tall reeds by an artificial pond, he saw the Tharrel on the opposite bank, staring down into the water. It was stagnant and putrid. But perhaps Birok was seeing the clearer waters of another day. He looked up at the sound of the doctor's approach, and seemed, for a moment, to be astonished. How did you follow Birok? he said. The doctor held up his rejuvenated hand and flexed his fingers. Good fortune and a brief exposure to the winds of change. Go back. There is nothing for you here. I tend to agree, but it's easier said than done. There was no obvious way of getting across the water. He couldn't see how deep it was and didn't much take to the idea of finding out. Birok said, The mirrors offer resistance in one direction only. Look, the doctor said, there's more at stake than just getting everybody back into the lifeboats. When you hijacked the TARDIS, you dropped us in the void with no guidebook. Birok knows what he is doing. Well, I wish I had his confidence. You're needed. By Rovik, Birok spits. Use the bargaining power you've got. He needs you. He needs Birok's kind in chains. That is the only bargain that Rovik will contemplate. To him we are Tharils, a savage curiosity, beings without feelings or souls, with no redeeming feature other than a price and an occasional usefulness. There will be no bargains with Rovik. In that case, the doctor persisted, all he'll have to do will be to chain another slave in your place. You'll lose your one advantage. Rovik offers nothing. Not even his cargo for his life? Not even that. Birok will see the Tharils freed, and no deal for Rovik. Go back. Wait. And he turned and walked away from the bank. The doctor called after him. Go back where? Birok stopped, half turned, and raised his arm to point. Then he walked on, and was swallowed by the overgrowth of a formal maze. And wait for what? To that there was no reply. It wasn't much of a guide, but it would have to do. The Tharrell had seemed unworried, the doctor thought, oddly confident, as if he'd already seen what was said to happen, and knew how it would end. 
It was a sad kind of courage. Laszlo brought them to a crumbling fountain, overgrown with pale moss. Even though it was broken and dry, there was still the sound of flowing water. The clash of realities was disturbing. Forget it, Laszlo, Romana said to him, as he looked into the fountain's empty bowl. He seemed disappointed, as if he'd expected something more. Your gateway is defunct and you know it. Do not be misled by details. Details are nothing. We've seen nowhere that hasn't been broken down and deserted. Those who deny reality usually suffer by it in the end. I can see how the Tharals became slaves. Laszlo turned suddenly, as if stung. He stared at Romana, and she tried to soften the bitter message a little. You trust too much, she said. Now you're relying on Birok to work a miracle for you, and he can't. Birok's no better off than you are, wherever he is. Laszlo continued to stare for a moment, and then abruptly turned back to the broken fountain. He scooped his hand into the empty pool and raised it high. A pourful of fresh, sparkling water spattered down into the pool. Laszlo shook the pour dry. Details, he said. Romana searched for something to say. She was still searching when the doctor called to them across the garden. Laszlo didn't react at first. Any voices that he heard, he assumed to be echoes from another time, with no real presence in this one. But Romana recognized the doctor immediately. Laszlo glanced around when he saw Romana move, and then seemed to be worried by the figure that was crossing a stone piazza towards them. It's all right, Romana reassured him, and then said to the doctor as he arrived, How did you get here? I'm still not sure about the details, but take a look at this. He handed her canine's memory wafer, supple and restored. As she looked at it, the doctor eyed the thorough with interest. But this is a new memory wafer, Romana said, and then looking up at it. Oh, and this is Laszlo. He helped me to escape from the slaver ship. Please to, the doctor began but broke off and said, Escape? Why were you even on the slaver ship? It's a long story. I even managed to lose Adric in K-9. Well, Rorvik's claws are out. If we're going to start pulling loose ends together, we'll have to do it soon. Birok will know, Laszlo said confidently. Sorry, Laszlo, the doctor said. I've seen Birok, and he's no better off than we are. But Birok is our leader. Birok's been in chains, and he's been alone. It could take him a while to get his leadership skills back. Meanwhile, Tharils are dying. There was a long pause. Laszlo was still, as if he was restraining himself. But in the end, he simply admitted, What you say is true. Will you take us back to the mirrors? We can't do anything here. Laszlo hesitated then nodded. He started to move away, and Romana hurried to catch up with him. I said the same things, 
she whispered angrily. Why didn't you believe me? The doctor has authority. His words are to be accepted. And why aren't mine? You follow. The word of a follower is worth consideration. That does not command obedience. That is the Tharyl way. I'm as qualified as he is. But still you follow. It was true. And even though she wanted to say it wasn't the whole story, she had no answer for him. She dropped back and found herself alongside the doctor. An apprentice again. The doctor said, Any ideas about the gateway? Ideas? Think of the nature of it. Interchanges between realities, layers of space, and shadows of time. Could it be linked to the CVE? You tell me. Romana thought a moment longer, and then said excitedly, The gateway is the CVE. Like the TARDIS, a thing that has no set form of its own can take any. So this is the way back to our own universe and... The way back to Gallifrey. That seemed to take some delight out of the discovery. And then it's all going to end, isn't it? I'd have thought you'd be pleased. The number of times you've been annoyed with me, the number of times you've complained, telling me that I'm messing about without plans or purpose. When I was looking for technical solutions, easy to predict and easy to forestall. The doctor smiled. Physics can only take you so far. The universe is an equation too vast to compute. So it's better to flow with it. That's the way. She sniffed. Not the Time Lord's way. Well, there's always an alternative. The Doctor moved on to catch up with Laszlo, and Romana was left to think about those words. Unfortunately, they didn't alter the facts. When she got back to Gallifrey, she'd resume her formal place in the Time Lord's hierarchy. She'd be expected to behave with all the gravity and rationality that suited her position. There was no way of avoiding it, unless... The force of what the doctor had been saying suddenly hit her. She had to stop and take a deep breath before she could go on. Nestor and another crewman were leaning hard on their improvised crowbars, trying to prise out a block of masonry that formed part of an arch. This was the mirror through which Birok had originally disappeared. Rorvik watched as the two men rocked their levers back and forth. The stone didn't seem to have enough room to work its way out. He decided to give it some help. He drew his pistol and put a couple of shots into the crack. He didn't seem much bothered about one of his men getting in the way. Nestor dropped his crowbar on his own foot and limped away, howling. Rorvik gestured another crewman to take his place. Now heave, he said. I want to hear a few bones cracking. He left them to it and went back to the main hall. Joss was waiting with the radio. Clearance on the interference, Captain, he said. Clearance on the interference, Rorvik mimicked, 
and snatched the radio. Well? He barked into it. Packard here. The signal was poor. You're going to tell me that one of the Therials got out? Yes. You're going to tell me there was a woman with him? Yes, but... You're going to tell me what she was doing on my ship? Rorvik said, his voice raising to a shout. When everybody knows it's bad luck to have a woman on board. There was a pause. Then Packard said, You mean things could get worse? For you, it can be arranged. Who was she? She just kind of appeared. We think she's with the Doctor. So you lost us a hostage. It was you who lost us the Doctor, Packard said, not wanting the points all to go to the one side. Don't answer back. Rovick glanced into the alcove. The stone block had almost been worked free. Once it was out, the others should follow easily. He said, Just hang around and you'll see some high-class leadership in action. We're going to bust open this ruin and drag everybody out by their tails. Over by the door, Nestor, who had a better view of the work, was starting to look worried. Rorvik ignored him. Just stand by, he told Packard. I'm going to check on the progress of the master plan. He carried the radio over to the arch, and his satisfaction evaporated. Where the stones had been levered out, there was a large gap a couple of feet square. The mirror continued seamlessly behind the wall. They could take out all the stone they wanted. Nothing was going to get them around the mirrors. Rorvik's anger was now cold, restrained. Everybody get their gear together, he said. Assemble by the main doorway and be ready to return to the ship. The crew started to move out. Over the radio, Packard said, What's the idea? We are going to blast this gateway apart, Rorvik said. That's the idea. I should have done it straight off, but that's what I get for being the kind who exercises restraint. He tossed the radio to Joss and stalked through into the banqueting hall. Come on, he shouted at the group around the table. Let's move it. Disc 3 Disc 4 Packard was used to Rorvik's way of ending a conversation. No farewells, no signing off. He simply walked away. The man had the manners of a thark. Packard sighed and stood up behind the communications desk. Sagan, its usual occupier, was standing over with Lane. Both were watching Packard and trying to appear as if they weren't. He walked across the bridge. He took his time, hands behind his back. Well, he said as he came near. He sounded almost genial. You feeling good? The approach puzzled Lane. As a general handyman and dog's body, he didn't have much experience of irony. He said, Should we be? 
Maybe not, considering you let it all happen. I don't see how we're to blame, Sagan muttered, looking somewhere else. Somebody's got to stand up and take the mud, and it isn't going to be me. Sagan said, that's not fair. Who said it was? Packard looked hard at Sagan, and his manner lost much of its lightness. If Rorvik wants heads to dance on, I'll give him yours. Who left a fit Tharrell for dead in the storeroom, and then couldn't stop him when he made a run for it? Anybody would think. Sagan began, but Packard was ignoring him, and had turned to Lane. Who, he said, couldn't even manage to get in his way? He was out of phase. Lane tried to explain. Him and the woman. Nobody could lay a hand on them. Packard turned away. I'm not interested in your excuses. Then why are you asking us? Lane said, bewildered, and Sagan had to elbow him to shut him up. Packard reached for the nearest microphone and twisted it towards him on its flexible stalk. There was a ripping sound. The stalk had once been repaired with tape. Packard flicked the microphone switch over to public address and his amplified voice echoed from the bridge speakers. Now hear this, he said. I'm saying this once and once only. Our beloved captain is on his way back. Several crewmen, mostly the ones out of sight down the central well, booed half-heartedly. That's right, we all want to give him the welcome he deserves, but we're going to be nice to him instead. Everybody to their positions as for a condition-red emergency. For the moment, I'll overlook the fact that when we had a condition-red emergency, nobody seemed to know where they were supposed to be. Start feeding fuel into the sub-warp engines and get them up to full capacity. Lane would never learn. He was trying to catch Packard's attention. Packard turned an unsympathetic eye towards him. Remember what I was telling you about the missile strike? Lane said nearly hitting the main power routings. Did it hit them? Packard said coldly. Not quite. So why are you telling me about it? Lane thought for a moment. How to frame the answer. But Packard wasn't interested. He'd already turned away to start checking on everyone's stations for the condition read. Crewmen were swapping seats and trading notes on little scraps of paper. Sagan was nudging him in the ribs again. And when Lane looked around, the communications clerk jerked his head in the direction of the door. The message was plain. Let's get out of here until it's all blown over. Lane took another brief look at Packard's back, and then nodded briefly. The two sidled off towards the bridge doors. Packard didn't even look around as they made their escape. As above, so below. In the fall of a coin was a tiny sample of the behaviour of its universe, which continued to be lucky for Adric, since K-9 no longer seemed to be capable of helping with the navigation. After a while it had been impossible even to roll him as his drives locked solid. So Adric got a grip on K-9's body case and lifted him. But the computer was heavy and the going was slow. It would have been even slower if Adric had checked his course more often. But he preferred to stagger on for as long as he could manage before setting the robot down. This left a danger that he could be spending his time heading unchecked in the wrong direction. Adric didn't own a timepiece, 
They weren't common on his own world, and since joining the Doctor, he'd had no reason to acquire one. Everywhere they went had a different length of day and of year, and each was divided differently for the convenience of the native civilization. And here, of course, there was no objective sense of time at all. He eventually set Canine down and rested on his knees for a moment. His arms were quivering and weak. He felt he had no control over them. He'd have to rest for a moment. He closed his eyes. He'd almost forgotten the danger and allowed himself to stare out into the void. It could be a soul-stealer if you let it. A few seconds of that white eternity, and your mind would slowly settle into a matching blankness, and stay that way until something jogged you back. Except, of course, that there was nothing to jog you. He fumbled out the coin. His hands were shaking, and he could barely hold it. He flipped and put out both hands to be sure of the catch. It was several seconds before he realized that there was going to be no catch. He'd flipped the coin too hard, too high. The void had taken it. His only means of navigation was lost. Laszlo seemed to be having trouble finding his way back to the section of the gateway that projected into the void, but he wouldn't admit it. He would stop at each junction in the castle, eyes narrowed and head cocked, to catch the faint sounds that drifted towards them. Sounds of celebration were the most frequent. But once there came a pitiful howling, which turned Laszlo back in his tracks. The doctor saw nowhere that he recognized along the way. Do you think he knows where he's going? The doctor murmured to Romana. Laszlo's broad back was before them as he turned from one side to the other at a corridor intersection. They'd just walked down a long picture gallery that had no pictures, only squares in the dust where they'd hung. Well, Romana said with ill-suppressed doubt, he's a thorough. Not a great recommendation on their performance so far. The doctor rejoined, unimpressed. The story of Tharyl greatness was one thing. Depending on such faded glory for survival was another. It's fair to say the situation's critical. Adric's lost, and Canine's failing. Yes, where did you get the new memory wafer? It wasn't new. What? It was one of the old ones. Passing through the mirror restored it. If we can bring Canine through... Laszlo was getting ahead of them. Don't lose sight of him, Romana said with new determination. I think, therefore, I am. Adric remembered the phrase as an assertion that the doctor liked to teach to computers. He'd said that it was essential to give a machine something to be proud of, otherwise it might brood too much and give you less than its best. At this moment... The same phrase was Adric's hook on sanity. He believed that he now understood the nature of the void. It had none. He'd been thinking of it as a kind of foggy planet surface, where everything stood on its own piece of ground and kept up a relationship of space and distance with everything else. But it wasn't so. 
Relationships in the void only existed as long as they were seen to exist. Turn your back and everything drifted. In his state of exhaustion, he'd made the mistake of failing to watch the coin. And so, unobserved, it had been freed of the obligation to behave according to the rules and fall. Now he knelt with his hand on the inert canine, and looked around for any shape or outline that would re-establish his link with reality. The coin is nothing, Birok said. The alien stood some way off, a silhouette blurred by the mists. Hijacker or not, he was a welcome sight. Adric got to his feet and almost ran across to the Tharyl, but then remembered K-9. If he were to turn his back and walk away, who could say if K-9 might still be there when he next looked? Birok repeated, The coin is nothing, no magic, the randomness is all, remember. And he started to walk away. Adric could have shouted, but he simply watched Birok go. The coin is nothing? That seemed like open stupidity. With it he could move anywhere. Without it he was lost. And then he realized what Birok meant. The randomness is all. There was no magic in the fall of the coin. All that mattered was the sample of the moment that it gave. But anything could be read as a sample. That was the very reason why the coin had been effective. There was a blue star on his jacket a badge he'd always worn with pride. He unpinned it and flipped it into the air, making sure that his eyes followed every stage of its spin. It dropped into his hand, with the reverse side showing. Perhaps Laszlo's senses were more acute than they seemed, or perhaps he was learning as he went along. In either case, he eventually got them back to the banqueting hall. The doctor's first passage through a mirror had been too sudden and unexpected for him to remember much about it. This time he didn't have the added distraction of rushing towards his own reflection and expecting a sharp crack on the head. As he stepped through the frame, it felt like a line of coldness that washed across and through his body. Romana was right behind him. Nobody home, she said. Some of the candles were still lit. Others had burned right down, and they were only smouldering. Rorvik's men had left a heap of litter on and around the end of the table. The doctor picked up a discarded wrapper and turned it over. Snook's yam jelly, a treat for your belly. But then something else had caught the doctor's attention. Philistines, he said as he stooped to pick something up. Barbarians! Romana said. You wouldn't expect Rorvik's men to clear up their mess, would you? It's worse than that, the doctor said. He'd found his scarf. It was half buried under the debris, and scraps were still clinging to it. As he knocked them away, he glanced down the table at Laszlo. The Tharyl was by the fireplace brooding over the debris of old carnage. Well, Laszlo, the doctor called, 
Any idea what Rovik's game might be? It was a moment before Laszlo realized that he was being spoken to. A moment longer before he came up with an answer. He shrugged and said, Something bad. That goes without saying. I'd expected to find him trying to chisel his way through the walls. And then something seemed to occur to the doctor. He said, What kind of weapons has he got? Nothing significant. Nothing at all? It seemed to cost Laszlo an effort to pull himself away from the fireplace. Nothing detectable, he said, as he came down the table. A slaver needs to be able to sneak past a civilized system without giving his secret away. Blatant weaponry would invite suspicion. So we can assume that they won't try to blast their way through. Romana said, Why not try tossing a coin to find out? Don't be ridiculous, the doctor told her. But she wasn't going to let him off so easily. It was your idea. That was a philosophical exercise, angels dancing on the head of a pin and all that. I'd never suggest it would be... reliable. At about the same time as the Doctor was denying the practicality of the system that he'd originally advocated, Adric was staggering into sight of the TARDIS. The distances for which he could carry K-9 were getting shorter, but as a result of that, his course checks became more frequent, and his navigation more accurate. If the Doctor had been able to show more faith in his own speculations, the events of the next hour might have been far less complicated. Laszlo had wandered off again. He seemed depressed, inattentive. He ran his hand along the panelling on a wall, as if trying to draw from it some of the former greatness of the Tharals. A slave, the doctor thought to himself. Laszlo's forgotten how to be anything else. Now Laszlo was over by the entranceway. Rorvik's men had left the heavy doors open to the void, and Laszlo looked out. The Doctor and Romana both saw his reaction at the same time, and they were with him even before he could turn and call. The privateer was a dim, featureless bulk, glimpsed through the fog. It was off the ground and turning slowly, putting its back and its massive engines towards the gateway. The doctor said, They've got no weapons, no lasers. Laszlo didn't take his eyes from the privateer, his prison. None, he said. So what can they be planning? The ship continued to turn. Now the thrust of the sub-warp lifting engines was carried towards them as a rumble, almost too low to hear. This is wrong, the doctor thought. They're too close. The Thyril suddenly growled in an agony of self-torment. Laszlo is blind, he said. That is their defense. Running away? Romana hazarded. Back in the days when there was a Thyril fleet, the slavers made secret visits to our system. They did not come openly, as they come today, dropping their nerve gases and collecting the fallen from the rock plains. They slipped in by the shadow of our moon. Our ships would pursue them, 
and the slavers developed the trick of overloading their engines to create a powerful backblast. It was more potent than any laser. The doctor said, It looks like they're going to try it now. What does he think will happen? Romana said, and there was awe in her voice. Her mind had taken the short jump ahead to see the consequences of Rovik's strategy. All the energy will be reflected straight back at them. But obviously Rovik's too dim to grasp that. He'll destroy his own ship, the TARDIS, everything. Let's move. As they hurried down the short tunnel and out into the void, the rumble of the subwarps grew louder. The sound penetrated Adric's consciousness. Or rather his unconsciousness as he was sprawling with his back to the TARDIS, too exhausted to raise the energy to get K-9 inside and hooked up to a power point. As he came blearily awake, he remembered what he was supposed to be doing. He rolled over painfully and managed to stagger to his feet. It was then that he became aware of the specific sound that had disturbed him. As he stepped out of the shelter of the police box... High-speed winds took him by surprise and caught at his clothes and hair. He blinked back the wind-driven tears that were blinding him. On the far side of the TARDIS, the privateer ship had turned and was beginning to settle. It was frighteningly near. He should have seen it coming. But it threw no shadow. And the TARDIS was squarely before the privateer's main engine. Go steady now, you crawlers! Rorvik barked. It felt good to be in command of a ship again, instead of a mobile picnic. I want a landing that wouldn't ripple the skin on a custard. The angle on the gateway had been checked and confirmed. The privateer began to settle in her new position. Packard counted them down. There was a resounding boom throughout the ship, and the bridge heaved violently. Papers slid off desks, and the loose head of a talkback microphone bounced across the floor. Rorvik seemed quite pleased. As his crew's landings went, it wasn't bad. He clasped his hands behind his back and began to stride along the bridge. Status report from the helm, he said grandly. What? said Nestor, caught unawares. Status report. Rorvik waited, but Nestor still obviously didn't understand. How is everything? Fine, thanks, said Nestor, still mystified. Rorvik was starting to get impatient. Got any figures for me? Nestor hesitated. He looked at the massive readouts that blinked all around the helm. He knew the meanings of no more than half of them. He said, Which ones would you like? Rorvik dismissed him with a gesture and moved on. Who's got control of the overload power? He demanded. Anybody? I think it's me, came a small voice from the other side of the bridge. It was Joss. I thought it was me, said Dulles, who had returned to his post. Rorvik sighed loudly so everyone could hear. Anyone else want to put in a bid?
Anyone got half an idea of what's supposed to be happening here? One or two hands went up, but he ignored them. Just as a point of information, we're going to be handling an overload that could blow us into scrambled Tharks' eggs, and I'd appreciate it if one or two of you could make a small effort and pay some attention to the work. Most of Dulles's attention was on the monitor screen in front of him. Hey, he whispered to the man at the next position. You know that little blue box thing? It's in the way. Yeah, said the other happily. Let's see how far we can blow it. It didn't take them any time at all to cross from the gateway to the TARDIS. Distances within the void were now shrinking perceptibly. The major masses that had created a mini-universe between them now drawing closer together. The Doctor even thought of a neat analogy that could be used to demonstrate the principle in a Gallifrey masterclass. The void as a featureless sheet of rubber, the separate masses placed on it in the form of weighted globes, only to roll together towards a common centre, where perhaps their combined weight would tear through the sheet and take them to where? A neat analogy, and a shame it would never be used. Not that the Doctor was unduly pessimistic about this situation, serious though it was. It was simply that no one had ever asked him to conduct a masterclass. They found Adric trying to manhandle K-9 over the threshold and into the TARDIS. You found your way back then, the doctor said. He was relieved to see Adric safe, but being the doctor he didn't show it. K-9 doesn't respond, Adric began urgently, but the doctor cut him short. Marvel as, with a flourish, I produce the answer to all his... The exposition tailed off as the memory wafer crumbled in his fingers. A few seconds, and it was dust. No answer at all. He compared the deterioration of the wafer with his own hand, which remained whole. The inert matter temporarily restored, but the living matter permanently renewed. But they had no time to waste. With Laszlo following, Romana gave Adric a hand to get K-9 inside. The doctor went straight to the console and began preliminary checks for a dematerialization, and Laszlo stood back a little way and watched him. He didn't marvel at the incongruous relative proportions of the ship, as most newcomers did. Any being with the gateway in its history would probably take such wonders calmly. We have to get out of the way before the fireworks start, the doctor explained. His idea had been to make a blind leap through the gateway, and then have the TARDIS establish coordinates, any coordinates, in the N-Space universe on the other side, their home reality. Now Rorvik's plan was threatening to ruin all that, and perhaps even close off the gateway forever. Laszlo said, Out of the way? Where? Doesn't really matter at the moment, does it? Anywhere's better than squarely behind the main engine. And Laszlo's people? The Tharrell said. Down there in the hold. What of them when the backblast comes? Even though time was limited, the doctor broke off to explain with tact and patience. Laszlo, there's nothing we can do. If I could get in and stop them, I would. But it's too late for that. Birok would know what to do. 
Laszlo said stubbornly, and the doctor began to get annoyed. Well, he said, it's a pity he isn't here. I know a way in, said Adric at his elbow. The doctor ignored the boy. We'd either have to take the bridge by force, which would be difficult for all three and a half of us, or else we'd have to sabotage the engines. Adric said, I know how to do that, too. And I don't think you can have much idea how complicated a Minodos warp system is. He frowned as Adric's words worked their way through. What are you talking about? There's a hole in the side of the ship where the missile hit them. You can climb in easily. Romana had finished the hookup and was coming over. Laszlo said eagerly, See? The doctor shook his head. It was no solution at all, but Adric went on. And then when I was listening at the door, I heard one of the crewmen talking. He said something about the main... the main power something being uncovered. He's right about the hole, Romana said. The rest I wouldn't know. The doctor held up a hand for silence and began to concentrate for a moment. If the power lines were uncovered, and if they could be reached, and if they carried the power to and from the bridge controls... Romana said, What are we waiting for? You're waiting for me and Laszlo to get back. But I... He stopped her with a slight nod towards Adric. And of course she couldn't argue. If the plan somehow failed, he couldn't be left to burn in the backblast. Adric was about to speak, and the doctor said, Before you ask, the answer's no. You don't even know the question, Adric protested. Don't I? You're staying here with Romana, and she's going to hit the go button if anything goes wrong. Come on, Laszlo. And without any further arguments, the Doctor and the Tharrell ran for the door. Warp systems on half power and holding. Overload systems primed and holding. Mechanical estimates unavailable. Target estimates. Manual control destination coordinates. Manual control failsafe cutouts re-engaged. Reminder, the third installment payments on the Mobius generator are now due. Rec Room Coffee Dispenser remains inoperable. Rec Room Sauna inoperable. Rec Room 3B inoperable. Rec Room Massage Unit inoperable. Rec Room Corridor Lights Failure Imminent. C01-00-2223 for systems check. Hi, there were three of them, Aldo said. And Waldo seemed suitably impressed. Three? Three of them? And they were all wearing those little hats? The rec room corridor light suddenly failed on them. Only the weak glow from the intersection with the bridge access corridor ahead gave them anything to aim for. After a few yards, Aldo noticed a sloshing sound around his boots as he walked. Waldo noticed it rather more forcibly as his boots leaked. Aldo sniffed. His coffee, he said. Well, Waldo said, I'm not cleaning it up. They bumped their half-filled plastic garbage bag up a flight of stairs to bridge level. Aldo operated the door control. If he knew what the flashing red alarm light over the panel was supposed to indicate, it seemed that he didn't much care. Rorvik was looking over Dallas's shoulder. The young crewman's method of operation was, to put it kindly, experimental. Rorvik's initial business-like enthusiasm 
had deteriorated into an ominous weariness. No, Rorvik said, as Dulles reached towards an obsolete control that was connected to nothing at all. Try something else. All over the rest of the bridge, crewmen were conversing in puzzled groups as they tried to work out the functions of systems they'd never used before. The bridge door slid open. Bins! Waldo shouted as he entered. Let's have your bins. Aldo joined in from just behind. Rorvik was slowly raising his head to look around. Packard saw this and tried to prevent the situation that he could see coming. Come back later, he said. Things to do later, Aldo said importantly, so all the bridge could hear. Come on, Waldo added. We haven't got all day. The attention-getting impact of Rorvik's shout was only slightly less than that of an erupting volcano. If those two old buzzards aren't off my bridge in ten seconds, tell them they'll be carrying their teeth around in a little paper bag. There was a sudden silence. Everyone was looking at Aldo and Waldo. Waldo said, Well, if you... Out! A conviction that the murder in Rorvik's eye was sincerely meant had them scrambling out of the door within a second. As the doors were closing, Dulles finished flicking a sequence of switches and allowed himself a small moment of satisfaction. There, he said, and Rorvik turned back to take a look. At first he said nothing. Then he slapped Dulles on the shoulder, as if in confirmation of success. Congratulations, he said. You just opened the loading bay doors. If we were in space right now, we'd all be dead. Keep up the good work. He moved on, leaving Dulles to look crestfallen. Packard picked up his clipboard and came across in order to help Dulles to work out how to correct the error. Rorvik, meanwhile, came level with two empty seats. He looked at them as if they were exactly what he could expect. This is great, he said. I'm having one of the worst days of my life, and now half my crew go missing. Where are Sagan and Lane? Sagan and Lane were looking for some quiet corner of the ship, where they could play a few hands of cards and ride out the worst of Rorvik's temper. Normally that would have meant the crew recreation room, but they'd found the floor and the outer corridor awash. The coffee spigot had been leaking and left unattended, and most of the underfloor wiring was starting to short out. So they decided to head for the storage holds instead, where they could push a few boxes together and make the place a little more like home. The loading bay door was opening onto the void as they passed through. The result of Dulles's mistake. It stopped as it was three quarters of the way open then abruptly started to lower again. The two crewmen walked on past, as if they'd seen it all before and expected nothing better. Which is how they missed seeing Birok as he stepped through the gap and melted into the shadows of the loading bay. Meanwhile, Laszlo and the Doctor had entered through the one breach in the ship's outer skin that Rorvik couldn't expect to seal. Well, Laszlo said impatiently, 
begin. The doctor was looking over the maze of wiring and conduit that was the privateer's warp control system. He said, I can't. Laszlo took a threatening step towards him, and he added, I've never seen anything like this before. You said they were Minados. That bit's Minados, the doctor said, pointing. And so's that. This is a Trevelyan coupler which shouldn't even be in a warp engine. That looks like part of a Fulton stabilizer. It's the most incredible lash-up I've ever seen. This could take hours. We have minutes. Then we'd better find some way of getting to the bridge and stopping Rorvik. It was at that moment they heard the locking bolts slam home in the airlock overhead. They climbed alongside the machinery to the catwalk. Powerful Laszlo made it first and reached back to give the doctor a hand. The points of his claws brushed the doctor's wrist as he felt himself lifted. It was probably an accident, but it might have been a reminder. The doctor gave the airlock a critical once-over. It was built for pressure, and so couldn't easily be forced, even with Laszlo's strength. But perhaps there was another way. There was a small panel on the frame with a touch-open button and an emergency pressure sensor. If pressure in the compartment dropped and the airlock was open for some reason, the sensor would automatically close it without need of command. But that could leave engineers trapped inside. If the emergency conditions subsided, there had to be some way to let the trapped personnel escape. There was a red light over the panel. Actually, it was an ordinary white light under a red plastic screw-on dome, and the doctor removed this. He placed it over the sensor and pressed down tight, covering it with both hands. Laszlo was looking puzzled. When the air under here gets warm, the doctor explained, the pressure goes up. If the door's got an independent all-clear circuit, we might be able to trip it. The theory sounded good. Personally, he wished he could have a little more faith in it. Saw Aldo and Waldo earlier, Lane said. Sagan was studying his cards and frowning. It was a good hand, but he didn't want Lane to think so. He said, Oh, yes? Got me wondering. You always see them moving rubbish around. Never actually see where it goes. Goes? Lane looked at his cards and sighed. It was a good hand, but he didn't want Sagan to think so. In the end, he said, we only ever see it moving from one place to another. That's all it does. Why don't we dump it into space? Unhygienic. They had plenty of warning. They heard the outer airlock door sliding open, and they had several seconds before the cycle could be completed for the inner door, only a few feet away from them, to open in turn. They wasted part of the time looking from the airlock to each other and back again. And Sagan also managed to sneak a look at the cards Lane was holding. But when Laszlo and the doctor came through, both crewmen were on their feet with sidearms drawn. Ah, said the doctor, as if he'd suddenly remembered a complication that could alter the running of his plan. Don't move, Sagan said. No one's actually moving, the doctor said. Sagan had them both put their hands on their heads. 
he made a point of staying well out of Laszlo's reach. He'd never again make the mistake of being casual in his handling of Farrell's. The only time a Farrell was safe was when he was sleeping like a stone and living out of a bunch of tubes, or else in chains. Rorvik had wanted a live one for a navigator, and now he could have one. He'd also wanted the doctor. He was going to get quite a package. They were marched out of the storage complex and through the loading bay. It was in the corridors beyond this, making their way towards the main bridge access way, that the doctor glimpsed Birok. Nobody else saw the Tharrell, not even Laszlo. It was almost as if Birok had shown himself to the doctor for some specific reason, and then had withdrawn. But why? The bridge wasn't far ahead. The privateer was primed and almost ready for the backblast that would destroy the gateway, the slave ship, and possibly even the TARDIS itself. They came to the rec room corridor. There were no lights, and the floor seemed to be awash. The whole party slowed, and Lane gave the doctor a prod in the back with his pistol. The doctor said, Rather dark, isn't it? What's the matter? You want somebody to hold your hand? The doctor was about to reply, but then an agreeable thought seemed to strike him. What a splendid idea, he said. Fortunately, Laszlo had picked up on the same notion. As their hands touched, they slid out of phase together. Each threw out a free arm, and Sagan and Lane were both slammed back against the corridor walls. Before Sagan could warn him, Lane tried to get off a shot at the two retreating figures. The charge hit the outer rim of the aura and bounced back at him, zapping and zigzagging from wall to wall. In an attempt to dodge the ricochets, both he and Sagan ended up on the corridor floor covering their heads. Rorvik isn't going to like us, Lane said, as his shot zipped by overhead and finally petered out in a rain of sparks from the ceiling. He doesn't like us anyway, Sagan replied. Just tell him. Lane got to his feet and went over to the nearest intercom point. The wall around it was scorched and smouldering. He tapped in the captain's code and heard a couple of moments later Rorvik's voice say, Bridge! How to explain. This was the second time they'd both managed to lose Laszlo, and there was no obvious way of making it look good. He began. Ah, I thought I'd better warn you, Captain. You'll be getting a couple of visitors any time now. Sagan glanced heavenward and turned away. Rorvik never heard the rest of the message. He slammed his fist down on the intercom button to shut it off. A couple of visitors, he said, his face thunderous. That's it. That's enough. I've warned Aldo and Waldo they don't set foot on this bridge again. He stalked across the bridge to the sliding doors, yelling as he went. The crew shrank back nervously as he passed. As soon as we get back into normal space, I'm stuffing them into their own waste bag and shoving them out of the nearest airlock. There was a metal handle set into the wall by the doors. He grasped it and gave it a quarter turn. A sign illuminated in a panel above it. 
Emergency door seal activated. Then he thumbed the button on the ever-present intercom alongside. Aldo and Waldo, are you listening to me? From now on you stay off this bridge unless you've got specific permission, and even then you'd better be sure that I'm not around when you arrive. Aldo and Waldo were nowhere in earshot. In fact, at that moment, they were in a stateroom that they'd found and cleared out for their own use, a long time before Rorvik had ever even considered his chances of a captaincy. It was the Doctor and Laszlo who arrived out of phase and slid back into normality in time to hear Rorvik's voice raving out of the door intercom at the empty air. You haven't got the remotest idea of what the pressures are like in an operational area, and what's more, you don't seem to care. If there was any higher authority than me aboard, I'd report you to him. So consider yourselves lucky you've got such a kind-hearted and tolerant captain, and not somebody of average sensibilities, who'd no doubt consign you to the horrible fate you so richly deserve. The doctor said to Laszlo, I think we're locked out. What now? There isn't much choice. It's the power lines or nothing. And considering the fact that the jerry-rigged mess that was supposed to be a Minodos warp control system was completely unfamiliar to the Doctor, he had a fear that it would probably be nothing. And see how you like that! Rorvik knocked off the intercom switch with some satisfaction and turned to survey the rest of the bridge. Nobody was working, and everybody was looking at him. His expression started to darken again. What's this? A free show? Get the ship ready for the overload! Packard cleared his throat. It is ready, he said. Oh, Rorvik said, slightly thrown. Right. Start the power build. Packard pulled one of the flexible microphones towards him. When he spoke, his voice would be heard throughout the privateer. Attention all zones, he said. We are building to a deliberate tactical overload. Expect the blast when we reach 105. Present level is 73 and building. 73? the doctor said gravely, as they let themselves through the airlock and back into the warp control compartment. What does it mean? Laszlo said. Haven't got a clue. They hurried across the catwalk and began to climb down towards the damaged section. The doctor said, Any idea what you're looking for? No. Well, that makes two of us. I'd suggest we split the whole thing, take a different area each. Eighty-five, and building. The situation was grave, the Doctor was thinking. Only Birok had any substantial chance of coming out of the backblast alive. But he'd thrown it away in making a return to the privateer. Why had he done that? If he'd stayed on the other side of the energy-reflecting mirrors, he'd have been safe. Everything this side of the gateway was set to be wiped out but the destruction would be contained within the void. Such was the disaster that lay ahead, perhaps less than a minute away. Unless... Ninety-two, and building. 
Laszlo surveyed his section of the control circuits with a sense of impotence. Farrells were intuitives. They knew nothing of engineering. He could be looking straight at the lines that they needed to disconnect, and he wouldn't even know it. But then he saw Lane's clipboard. He had to pull himself up to be level with it. The damaged control forms had been pushed in behind some fat snakes of cable to hold them in place. This had obviously happened since the missile hit, in which case, surely this was the area where he needed to be. 98, and building. The doctor was beginning to realise that his choice was a mistake. The Trevelyan coupler occupied most of his area, and none of that had even been touched by the damage. It was all Birok's fault. But no, he realised that was ungenerous. The fault lay in slavery. Birok had only done the best he could to escape, and he couldn't be blamed for that. Even if his action did initiate the chain of circumstances that had led them to this present crisis. On reflection, Birok was probably safe whatever happened. A storm of time winds would be raised by the backblast, but Birok could probably just slide out of phase and ride the Holocaust until it subsided. So could Laszlo, for that matter, or any Tharal who was sufficiently conscious to make use of his ability to cut himself loose from the moment. Now there was the basis of a plan, even if it was too late to do anything about it. If only Birok could have looked into the future, could have seen the pattern of events that lay ahead, as he ran from the privateer to ride the time winds and seek out the TARDIS. One hundred, even. Stand by for overload. As understanding was dawning for the doctor, Laszlo was feeling his excitement rise. These must be the cables, he was thinking. And if they aren't, then what do I have to lose? There was a growing rumble from deep inside the ship, and the floor below was starting to vibrate. He thrust a paw under the main power lines and tensed himself ready to rip them all out in a single heave. One hundred and five. We have overload. The rumble became a roar, the vibration an earthquake. The doctor's hands were grasping Laszlo's ears, pulling the Tharrell's head back. Laszlo howled, more in anger than in pain, and he released the cables to push the doctor away. When he turned back, it was too late. The overload had begun, and nothing could stop it now. But there was time for one little revenge. Laszlo turned on the doctor, the one who had damned the imprisoned Tharrells, and they might have been saved, but spent his last moments as unpleasantly as possible. Believe me, Laszlo, this is the only way. The doctor didn't even know if he could be heard over the below-deck's vibration of the warp motors. The Tharrell held out his paw and unsheathed the claws on it. Fully extended, they were almost an inch. The doctor backed off, down towards the void fog and the torn metal at the privateer's side. He said, This is what Birok expected all along. It was the name that stopped Laszlo, when probably nothing else could. And as the warp motors continued on their one-way climb to Armageddon, he stayed his hand and waited 
for whatever the doctor was trying to say. Birok knew that this would happen. He wanted it to happen, and that's why he waited and did nothing. The blast won't harm your people. It will free them. Birok, meanwhile, was about halfway through his work. He'd made his way through the slavehold, briefly touching each of the sleeping forms that he passed, and pushing them gently out of phase. Some of the younger and tougher Tharals were awake and alert already. They needed nothing to be explained to them, but immediately started to disconnect themselves from the now useless life supports. They moved through to the other levels of the hold, each touching more Tharals. The glow rippled through the darkened chambers like wildfire. Each Tharal that came around was immediately presented with overlapping visions of only two possible futures. Holocaust or survival. It was rare to be given such a clear-cut choice. The range of potential tomorrows was usually endless, with the least probable versions being the most difficult to perceive, which made Birok's achievement, as he'd lain in his shackles on the privateer's bridge, even more remarkable. As the doctor was now trying to explain to Leslo, Birok had managed to glimpse as a unity the events that would follow if the privateer and the TARDIS were to be brought together at the gateway. There had been no randomness in his actions, and no indecisions in his failures to act. When Birok watched and did nothing, it was because he already knew what lay ahead. As a piece of complex visualization, it was bound to become a thorough legend. It wasn't for nothing that they called Birok their leader. Now, even the older Tharals were shaking off the effects of the drugs and coming around. All were fit and clear-headed. The slavers, walking in armor and respirators across the alien plane, as the nerve gases drifted around them, had picked only the best. The last Tharal slipped into safety as the build-up in the warp motors reached overload, then exploded. Romana had waited as long as she dared, and then a little longer. But when the danger signals on the TARDIS console stopped flashing and became steady, she knew that it was too late to hope. Even then she might have delayed a moment longer. But a glance towards Adric reminded her that there were other responsibilities she had to acknowledge. She operated the control to dematerialize. There hadn't been time to attempt anything more sophisticated than a simple jump two or three minutes into the future. Such jumps weren't really practical, as they took two or three minutes to effect, and the saving in temporal terms was nil. But in the time that the trip was being processed, they would be beyond the reach of the physical forces of their environment. And that was exactly what they needed. For a moment, it looked as if she'd left it too late. The control room began to shiver as the blast of the slaver ship's engines washed across the spot where they'd been. But it was no more than an echo that they carried with them, and it had no true destructive force. Romana watched the instruments on the console, searching them for clues to what might be happening outside. She saw masses move and change, 
energies flow, bursts of radiation. She observed the consequences of Rorvik's bull-headed and uninformed decision. It was much more than a simple backblast. It was the total collapse of the small universe that had been formed in the void. They'd known that it was unstable, that the masses of the privateer and the TARDIS and the Gateway had been drawing themselves together towards an eventual collapse. Even the privateer's computer had sensed the compression of mass that had made the ship measurably smaller. But Rorvik wasn't in the habit of paying much attention to his computer. Nor did he pay any attention to the even clearer signals that he should have picked up when the distance from the privateer to the gateway appeared to diminish each time it was crossed. Rorvik's habit was to go for what he wanted, and let others clean themselves off as he passed. Matter is only energy locked down tight. Energy is matter set free. As the privateer's warp motors released vast amounts of energy into the void, the collapse began to accelerate. And the doctor was somewhere out there, unprotected in the middle of it. He didn't have a chance. Romana sighed, lowered her head. Adric was sitting by K-9 and holding onto the mobile computer for comfort. The charge lead linked K-9 to the wall socket, and Romana had wired in two of the static charge blocks. But apart from a weak glow of his operational lights to indicate that power was making its way through, there had been no response from him. Hadrick said, What now? Now? Romana looked again at the console readouts. The matter of the void was being squeezed down a whirlpool. Lectures in temporal mechanics had taught her that reality, though infinitely flexible, was ultimately indestructible. The privateer would be spewed out somewhere, dismantled and dispersed and beyond recognition. But Adric had asked her a question. Now, she repeated, nothing. The control room was suddenly flooded with a blinding light, so bright that she had to cover her eyes before she'd had a chance to see why. But she knew why. The doors were opening again. Adric managed to peep out between his fingers. Everything outside was moving with dragging slowness, a sign that the TARDIS was still in transit. It seemed that the void itself was on fire, and pieces of the slaver ship were aflame as they were blasted around. Even the huge stones of the gateway castle were burning, and one of the great wooden doors went spinning by and narrowly missed slamming its way through into the control room. Romana seemed to have forgotten the pain of the light. She was rising from behind the console. She'd seen that the Doctor and Laszlo were running for the TARDIS. Their hands were linked and they were both out of phase, riding out the worst of the explosion. It was no easy run. The whirlpool forces dragged at them, and for some of the way they were actually losing more ground than they made. It was Laszlo's strength that decided the matter. For when the doctor was momentarily lifted off his feet and drawn back, it was Laszlo who stood his ground and anchored him. The second gateway door sailed past close overhead. An airborne raft of fire. The doctor and the Thyril ducked 
before making the effort to sprint the final distance to the waiting TARDIS. Laszlo didn't cross the threshold. He handed the Doctor in, and they parted. One inside, and one outside. The Doctor quickly stabilized, and the doors began to close behind him. Scream! he shouted to Romana, as they lost their view of the disintegrating world outside. He held his shoulder as he moved across to the console. For some of the distance, he'd bobbed like a puppet, with only Laszlo's iron grip on his wrist to keep him down. His arm would ache for days, but he wouldn't mind. It would remind him that he was alive. The screen opened to give them an exterior view. The privateer had been stripped down to a skeletal wreck, like the rotted corpse of a beached whale. But there was movement within it. Birok was leading out a line of Tharils. They were free, but after all the destruction, where could they go? The ribs of the privateer began to crumble. The reaction was burning itself out. As the scene began to clear a little more, Romana pointed towards the Tharil's destination. The stonework of the gateway had been completely stripped away. There was no more banqueting hall, with its thousand-year-old mouldering feast, and no ensemble of ghosts would ever play from the minstrel's gallery again. But the mirrors were still there, untouched and unharmed, a black and glittering Stonehenge of wafers. Birok was the first to a mirror. His hand stretched out, and his aura melted into the surface. He stepped through, and the line followed. Tharil after Tharil after Tharil after Tharil. The void had one more surprise. The privateer collapsed in on itself, driving the crew out of their shelter. It seemed impossible that they could have survived. And in truth, they hadn't. Yet some shadow of them still existed, wrenched from their timeline by forces reflected from the gateway. As they came stumbling out of the remains of their ship, they were ghostly and almost transparent. Rorvik was shouting, but making no sound. All of them were blackened, smoking from the blast that had hurled them into this disjointed state. Aldo and Waldo were dragging a ghostly garbage bag, spreading the rubbish into the great beyond. Laszlo was the last to the gateway. He lagged some distance behind, and as a figure re-emerged from the mirror, it seemed as though one of the Tharils might have been sent back to check for him. But it was no Tharil that stepped through. It was one of the Gundan, armed and ready. Laszlo hesitated, his escape route blocked. The mass murder that had begun on that spot an age before seemed about to be continued. And what of the others that had passed through before him? Had the Gundan simply waited on the other side of the mirror, his victims obediently walking under the axe one at a time? It was difficult to imagine the workings of the Gundan's dark soul. 
for an age it had waited. Obedient to its prime command, to kill the brutes who rule. In some ways it was an uncomplicated creature, bent to a single purpose. But in order to operate independently, in territory where its masters could never go, it needed a measure of analytical judgment. Not much, never enough to allow it to reflect on its orders, just enough to let it carry them out, to seek out and punish the brutes who rule. And who were the rulers now? Who wore the chains? And who held the whips? Who ran? And who chased? The Gundan had pondered these issues as it walked alone through the abandoned gateway. Now it walked on past them, ignoring him. Its attention was on the crew of the privateer. Rorvik saw it first. He saw it raise a three-fingered hand and make a beckoning motion. Whereupon Rorvik swallowed hard. For the Doctor and Romana, considering how close they'd come to being wiped out, any ending could be considered happy, as long as they lived to enjoy it. But there was one reservation, a shadow in the brightness of their relief. Canine had, it seemed, deteriorated beyond rescue. In a way it was ridiculous. A machine, a mobile computer. The thing had been built and could, if necessary, be built again. But once extinguished, there was no way of reproducing its personality with any exactness. Too many small and unpredictable factors were at work. And a copy would never be any more than just that. And like anything with a personality, K-9 had become something other than a mere piece of the TARDIS's furniture. He was still whole, but he was a relic. Everything was there, but none of it worked. Even the comparative alertness that he'd shown over recent hours had only lasted for as long as he could hold a charge. And when the power ran out, so did life. He'd be restored on the other side of the mirrors, Romana said. The doctor shook his head. Restoration via the mirrors was a one-way trip, or it didn't last. Unless you were a biological system that could follow the pattern of the change... When the doctor had returned through the mirror, his hand had stayed whole, while the memory wafers crumbled. And if K-9 were to be put through, and then abandoned, he'd be trapped and alone, the doctor said. It's no answer. Give him to me instead. To you? Romana nodded. I'm not coming back with you, doctor. It's time to choose and this is the choice I'm making. So it seemed that her apprenticeship was indeed finally over. The doctor smiled. She would be better than good. She would be superb. He said, What will you do? What we've always done. With no TARDIS? I don't need a TARDIS. I'll have the gateway. 
I'll learn to use it the way Birok's people used to. You mean, when they were the most vicious slavers in the known universe? She'd obviously thought it all out. There's my first job. Making sure history doesn't repeat itself. Well... That was it, then. The Doctor had known it would be goodbye. But thinking of the Time Lords, they'd be expecting the return of one of their own. And they'd be disappointed. He started to smile, and it turned into a broad grin. Time Lords. They thought they knew how the whole universe ticked. And they considered themselves perfectly suited to supervise it. Such arrogance had always made him uncomfortable. Which was why, many adventures before, he'd stolen the TARDIS and run, determined not to stay among their ranks. And now the message was starting to spread. He said, I can only wish you good luck. It's not likely we'll meet again. I know, Romana said. Not impossible, he added. Just improbable. So let's just make it au revoir. For the Doctor and Adric, leaving the Void would be a relatively simple matter. As with most problems, the main obstruction had been a lack of useful information. Once it was known that the gateway was actually formed from the fabric of the CVE, the charged vacuum emboitement, a hole in space similar to that through which they'd originally fallen, then he had a target, the one essential they'd lacked in their earlier attempts to leave e-space. So the Doctor set the TARDIS a problem in theory. To forget for a while the existence of a larger universe, and to consider that the TARDIS and the Circle of Mirrors were everything. It took only minutes for the TARDIS to produce a mathematical summary of that mini-universe, and even less time for the Doctor to invert it. The coordinates derived from that inversion and fed into the console would put the TARDIS on the other side of the mirrors and back into N-space. From there, they could pick their destination. Simple, really. Romana sat on the mossy stone of the fountain in the hidden garden. Now a little water was spattering from the vents. Real water, not just sounds. It showered into the bowl, but didn't collect. The stone was cracked, and the water bled away into the ground beneath. But somewhere else in the garden, the fountain was whole, and the water ran fresh. And somewhere even further away, there was bare, rich ground that was as yet untouched by the ancient builders. She'd chosen the spot well. No flip of the coin, but a good guess instead. Before her was a terrace, and then a shallow flight of steps led to a formal lawn. The maze was beyond this, hopelessly overgrown. She didn't have to wait for long. The sound was faint at first, but it quickly grew. It was an unmusical sound, a warning hoot. And as it grew louder, a blue double-cube shape 
in the form of an old Earth police box, slowly materialized in the middle of the lawn. It never reached full solidity, but began instead to fade again. The garden's only a stepping stone to new sights, new adventures. Romana stayed for a while longer, watching the place where it had been. The grass, only briefly pressed down by its appearance, soon lost the marks of the materialization. She became aware that somebody had moved in close beside her, but she knew who it was, and she was unworried. Regrets? Laszlo said. She took a breath, and then a last look. It was her farewell to the old life. She said, Of course, but nothing would hold me back. Laszlo inclined his head to show his understanding, and the two of them walked across the terrace and away from the fountain. Canine stayed a little longer. His senses were more acute, and the traces of the TARDIS took longer to fade. But after a while, he wheeled around and started down the path behind the Tharrell and his mistress. Doctor Who, Warrior's Gate, was written by Stephen Gallagher, writing as John Lydecker. It was read by John Colshaw and is published by BBC Audio.